So, hello there today. My name is Matthew Sauter, and I am here with... And hi, everyone. My name is Jonathan Heaven. Gotcha. So we are two fourth-year medical students at the Nova Southeastern University MD School, and today we're just going to be talking about medical school overall in terms of everything that goes into it, and we're going to kind of be constraining ourselves to M1, M2, and M3, which does not seem like a major constraint, seeing as it's covering three major years of medical school training, but there's definitely some some common themes that I've picked up on, and I'm sure Jonathan has as well, kind of just going through the whole process. So with that being said, I'll, I'll pass it over to Jonathan, kind of just introduce himself, kind of let us know what he's all about and kind of what brought him here. Yeah, thank you. Um, and yeah, everyone, so hey, I'm Jonathan Heaven. Um, so fourth year medical students, um, so I just recently matched a psychiatry residency program, so very, very excited about that. Um, so yeah, so we're just really thrilled to kind of take a little look back, kind of share our perspective, what worked for us, maybe what didn't, and hopefully just try and inform and, and help you guys along the way. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, my name is Matthew. Most people just call me Matt. Uh, in terms of me, I just matched into orthopedic surgery, so definitely excited for that and have a fiance about to get married soon, so definitely a lot of a moving pieces right now for us with the, the move for residency, getting married, everything that goes into that. But I just wanted to give you a little bit of background about myself kind of before medical school because a lot of people have a different path in terms of how they get there, and I did not necessarily have the, the most direct path when it came to medical school. So for my background, I was born in Canada, so if I drop a couple A's during this podcast, that is the reason why. And then at the ripe old age of six weeks old, I decided Canada was not for me. So I moved over to Michigan. And from there, if you officially want to track me, I was in Michigan. Then I moved back to Canada in the Toronto area, moved over to Quebec, learned a little bit of French, moved down to Connecticut, forgot all the French I learned, but picked up some Spanish, which was definitely helpful in third year clerkships being in the Miami area. And then New Jersey, North Carolina, Wyoming, Florida. So that's definitely taken me around a lot of different areas. In terms of my undergrad, I went to school over in Canada. I went to the University of Waterloo, which pretty much nobody in the United States has heard of. But if you remember the BlackBerry cell phones, the nice little keypad on there and everything, the guy who founded that went to the University of Waterloo. So that is definitely the, the claim to fame there. Donate a ton of buildings is not donating quite at the rate as when everybody was buying, buying the Blackberries. But Big science engineering school. I had a, a dual degree for undergrad where I was chemistry as well as economics and kind of explored healthcare from a bunch of different avenues before going into medical school. I worked um, as a healthcare consultant when I was living in New Jersey for large pharmaceutical companies. I worked as a marketer for pharmaceutical companies as well as a sales rep over in Wyoming and in Florida. But I think I always had in the back of my mind when I was doing that that I wanted to apply to medical school and had the MCAT taken, had all the prereqs done it, and finally decided to, to pull the trigger. And I was, I was very fortunate enough to, to get accepted to NOVA and definitely have had a, had a great experience with that. And wow, that's thank you so much for that info, Matt. And so my story is a lot less moving around, <laughs> uh, for sure. So I'm born and raised in South Florida, uh, grew up down here, went to the University of Florida for my undergrad, um, where I was a health science major. Um, I pretty much knew the whole time that I wanted to become a doctor. Um, I was totally open-minded about what kind, but I knew I wanted to serve people in that capacity, and I had that skill set. 
Um, and then, so after graduating, I took a um, double gap year, actually, um, where I got a lot of really valuable real-world experience. Um, so for both of those years, I worked as a community health worker, um, which essentially I went out into the community, engaged with people. We had meaningful conversations about their health conditions, health concerns, and then I would try and connect them up with relevant social or medical resources in the area, as well as health research opportunities at the University of Florida. Um, and then for my second gap year, in addition to that job, I also worked as a nurse assistant um, at a hospital. And that was a very, very eye-opening experience. Um, it taught me a lot about the value of teamwork, how important everyone is. Um, and it really kind of set that kind of understanding the entire team as a whole from all different perspectives of it, if that makes sense. Um, so those were experiences that I was really thankful for, and it kind of set a great basis for med school, and and I've really enjoyed my time at Nova Southeast University. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I think it might surprise some people listening to this to know Jonathan and I really don't know each other super well at this point. We've definitely been acquainted, kind of going through the whole journey, and we've talk to each other periodically, but we were never super close friends throughout the journey. So it was kind of interesting to hear kind of everything that went into him going into medical school in terms of kind of the different aspects. And I think gap years are becoming more and more common. I didn't officially say it, but I had two years off in between undergrad and going to, to medical school. And for me, I just found it incredibly valuable. I think if I, at least for me personally, if I immediately jumped into medical school, I don't know if I would have, I think I've always had a little bit of regret in terms of would I have enjoyed kind of working in the business avenue more? Would I have enjoyed a different area of healthcare? And having those couple of years to kind of just flesh everything out and just be really solidified that I want to commit the time to do this because medical school is definitely a huge time commitment. So that was really valuable. And it was really cool hearing Jonathan had a, a similar experience in terms of exploring different areas. And it sounded like he always had an inkling that he wanted to, to be a doctor from kind of when he was starting undergrad there, but kind of exploring all the areas and a lot of it is kind of exploring the area and just building your resume because at least for me medical school was super competitive i wasn't the most competitive applicant going into it and looking back there's definitely things i would have changed in terms of how i went about preparing for it but i think like we both said we were definitely fortunate enough to get the opportunity to to go to nova and i think we both made the most out of it i definitely agree um, and you bring up a great point about gap years they're becoming more and more common um, and personally, I think it helped a lot of both professional development to really get into medical school, but more so, I, I think even more importantly, it really kind of got me emotionally ready. Um, just taking a little bit of time to decompress and also save up some money, um, it, it really, I think, helped me emotionally prepare for the crazy stress that was first year of medical school. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think for me, it, it also gave a lot of perspective to... I, I don't know if it's just me attributing this to other people, but just seeing other people who went directly from undergrad straight into medical school, they're some of the most brilliant people you could be around. But I think there's just a mentality when you've been in academia that you're kind of, it's always the grind, you're getting ready for the next test, and it can be very stressful on yourself because that's all you've been really exposed to versus when you've kind of been out working, not necessarily within academia, somewhat correlated with it, but if you're kind of working outside of it, you get a perspective that there's a lot going on outside of academia. And at least for me, it helped take a lot of the stress off in terms of exams. I mean, you're never going to take fully the stress off of having a, a med school test coming up the next week, but it helped put everything in perspective, knowing that there's more to the world than just academia, going to medical school, going to residency beyond that. So for me, that was a, a huge value to um, can definitely be a, a planner and definitely a stress person for building up for these exams. So 
I like to say it helped. I'm not sure how much my fiance would agree with how much it actually helped <laughs> reduce my stress level, but I like to think it helped at least a little bit in terms of getting a, a bigger perspective than just the pre-med classes, the calculus, uh, physics, chemistry, everything like that, and kind of see everything within a, a bigger picture. I could not agree more. Um, but also, with that being said, I think a common theme of stuff we're going to discuss throughout all of our four episodes is that everyone's different. Everyone has their own path that's right for them, you know, and so so pretty much all the advice we're going to give, it's going to be things that you should consider, but also take into account your own circumstances because you, you know yourself better than anyone else. Um, so we're just going to share what worked for us, what worked for classmates, um, and hopefully give you some new ideas to try out and see what you like. Absolutely. I think that's definitely a good goal of what we're trying to do here. And I know I've already had some people from the classes behind me reach out about applying into orthopedic surgery and surgery and in general. And sometimes I feel bad that I can't just say, go ahead and do this. This is the way to do it. This is the best way. I, I try to frame it as everybody needs to come up with a strategy that they're comfortable with. And that applies not only applying to residency, but from M1, M2, M3, and all throughout medical school is just understanding yourself and kind of building the medical school experience that you want to build. Obviously, there's different deadlines associated with it and everything that comes along with medical school, but understanding your strengths, understanding your weaknesses, and just finding a way to just maximize your potential within medical school is, is the way to go about it. But unfortunately, I, I, at least me personally, I can't just say this is the absolute way to do it. So I think we're going to try to present some different ways to go about approaching medical school and Kind of take what you like, leave what you don't necessarily like, and just kind of figure out what works best for you. Definitely. Um, so without further ado, I think we can kind of start working our way through the first year of med school. Um, so you, you, you might have heard that common analogy of your first med school experience is basically like trying to drink water through a fire hose, um, where you're just getting all this information and you have to learn it ridiculously fast, essentially. Even if you've seen it in some undergrad classes, um, it's definitely, definitely a lot. Um, and so in order to handle that, you really got to try and test out some different ways to see how your studying is going to adapt and how you're going to change to make that transition. No, I uh, definitely completely agree. And I always find it funny. I feel like there's just like a conference where everybody gets together and comes up with like the platitudes for medical school. And then the drinking water through a fire hose is just like the tried and true. It's used probably at every single medical school across the country. And I think it just aptly describes kind of everything coming at you. I mean, at that point, when you finally get accepted to medical school, definitely have a huge sense of pride in terms of everything that went into accomplishing it. Your family's proud of you. And I think there's just so much excitement for it. But for me, at least, there was so much hesitancy, too, in terms of I was outside of studying for two years. You know, everybody around you has performed at an extremely high level from high school to undergrad to whatever they did during their gap years if they took one. So you just don't know how you're going to do. And as somebody who really wants to always strive to be the best and kind of set himself up for success, it was really hard to deal with all of the uncertainty because there was uncertainty with what the classes are going to be like. I didn't know what we would be doing day in and day out. I knew we were going to be studying a lot and I knew it was going to be a huge time commitment. But outside of that, I really did not have a really good idea. And I think that was definitely a shortcoming of mine. I should have reached out to people, kind of understood what the actual curriculum of medical school was like. So at least it would relieve some of those anxieties that I definitely had going into it. So 
I think when it comes to, to M1, I remember our very first couple of weeks when we were at Nova, we had the orientation week, and I think it was really valuable to kind of just get acquainted with the school. It took a little bit of the edge off. You got to meet some of your classmates, understand that they're human beings just like you, and they're not just robots who are just studying 24-7. So it was good to see we had a great, great group of people in our class, some great personalities, people interested in different things, different backgrounds. And I remember sitting in, in Martyr Auditorium and everybody had to go around and give a fun fact and introduce themselves. And I really, I leaned hard into the fact that I was Canada for all of my fun facts. So <laughs> everything was related to hockey, Canada, snow, anything along those lines. So I branded myself as the Canadian of the group. And even though we were all having a, a really good time, I think even during those two weeks, there was that kind of looming stress of we really didn't know what was going on. Uh, we were a newer medical school too, where there was only one class above us. And they were doing an excellent job of describing all the different aspects in terms of studying. And they gave us all the resources that they used and they were being extremely helpful with that. But for me personally, I just found like it was just information overload before I was even studying in the first place. They were talking about a ton of different resources that they used to study. Everybody was saying, oh, you have to go to lecture. Some people would say, I would never go to lecture in my life. I wouldn't be caught dead in lecture at all. It's a complete waste of time. So there was so much different information and Kind of as we alluded to earlier, there's no one size fits all when it comes to, to medical school, especially in the in the pre-clerkship in terms of kind of figuring out what works for you. So sitting there kind of giving our fun facts, getting to meet the class, it was awesome to know that we had a great supportive group around it. But again, I think my anxiety was still was still there throughout that orientation week. If not, it kind of built a little bit towards the end because you felt like it was the calm before the storm and you're all, all building to that. So that was my initial kind of thoughts going into medical school. John, I'd be curious to hear what, what your thoughts were during the, the introduction to, to the faculty and everything like that. I agree. Um, you make a lot of great points. You know, that, that two-week kind of intro, um, it was really helpful to just kind of dip your toes in the water before you're like, got your head in the book nonstop, if so to say. Um, and so really, it, it kind of helped a lot. I think one of the best things that you could do early is is find out some people that honestly you can suffer with and suffer through these <laughs> these tough times you know um and just be able to kind of like like manage imposter syndrome you know because that is something that everybody goes through in their first year especially and it very well could continue um but it's it's something that we all go through and kind of discussing that and being able to just kind of have someone to rely on helps um no matter if that's hopefully that that could be someone in school with you um i also was lucky enough to go to medical school um very close to my house actually 20 minutes from my childhood home um so i have my home base here um and that really really went a long way in kind of keeping me sane um, so yeah, I would say those those intro days are very useful to kind of find people that you're going to mesh with. Um, you can start learning those resources, at least hearing all these different options. I mean, you're going to be like, what the heck is all these things? How do you set them up? How do you possibly use them all in a day? And you don't, you know, you got you to gotta try and figure out what works for you and kind of test the waters. Oh, I completely agree with that. I mean, definitely drew up some really good points in terms of having a support system around you. That's something that you can start planning before you even start medical school. And I know from my perspective, it was my then girlfriend at the time was living over in Tampa. I just moved down to Miami, Fort Lauderdale area and didn't really know anybody in the area. Just got set up in my apartment and then was ready to kind of 
jump into the world of medical school. And I think Jonathan brought up a really key term there with imposter syndrome, and I'm not sure if everybody listening knows exactly what it is. So you've got the psychiatry background, so elaborate on the imposter syndrome. Yeah, so imposter syndrome is an unfortunately all too common feeling that even though you've gotten through the point in being successful to getting to medical school, that everyone else deserves it and that you don't. That deep down, you're not good enough and there's no way you're going to be able to fake it all the way through medical school. Um, But honestly, it's such an overwhelming amount of content and it's such an important thing that you're trying to dedicate your life to. Um, it's just it's just kind of a natural instinct to where the brain goes that, oh my goodness, how could I possibly handle all of this? Um, so, so that's essentially what imposter syndrome is. Um, and it's been studied quite deeply and it's just prevalent everywhere. Um, unfortunately, as you keep advancing through medicine, as you go from M1 and then you get more comfortable as you climb the ladder through M4 and then you start your PGY1 intern year and and then a lot of people, it's it shoots right back up. So unfortunately, but a big way to try and manage it is to discuss it and just try and keep in the back of your mind, everyone feels this way and it's an okay natural response and it's not true. I've worked hard to be here. You know that your school believed in you to accept you. Um, your peers are all feeling the same thing. So it's just a way to try and mitigate and keep that in mind instead of falling into that false belief. Absolutely. So... Now that we got everybody done with orientation, everybody's proud of themselves, nervous, feel like they're in medical school, but don't feel like they necessarily are a doctor or necessarily anywhere near that point. We're just going to cover some of the the key topics that we think would be valuable for anybody to to be aware of. So kind of have some broad categories that we want to touch on. So one is just developing effective study habits. Jonathan definitely alluded to just the sheer volume of knowledge that you need to pick up rather quickly when it comes to first and second year. Uh, additionally, I referenced some of the different resources that are available to students in terms of learning the content that they need to, to know. So we'll touch on some of those. And then at the very end, I think we're both very passionate about the fields we're going into. So we'll give a little bit of a shout out to Jonathan Psychiatry and me for, for orthopedic surgery in terms of kind of some of the, the tips for anybody considering those specialties might want to have in mind when it comes to kind of the first and second year of medical school. So with that being said, kind of developing effective study habits, I know Kind of looking into medical school, you see all the, the med influencers and everything, and you see people with the beautiful notes all printed out all in a lovely manner, which I am physically incapable of doing. And you see everybody's just sitting around kind of talking and learning in a huge group setting. And then you kind of think that's how medical school is going to be. And at least that's the impression that I got going in, that there was huge groups of people sitting around, you're studying together, bouncing ideas off of each other. And I think that was kind of amplified by the fact that Nova, along with a lot of other medical schools, have a case-based learning system where you have PBLs or problem-based learning where you're kind of learning as you go through a specific case um, and definitely other areas when it comes to that. So, uh, Jonathan, I'd be curious to kind of see your interpretation of when it comes to studying, there's the kind of people who like to study on their own versus studying in a large group or smaller group. What are your kind of thoughts? What kind of worked for you? And what is your kind of kind of advice when it comes to that? Definitely. Um, so I am personally someone that loves silence when I study. Um, I find it very easy to get sidetracked. And if I'm with a group of people, they're going to have a conversation and then I'm going to want to talk about that. And then I'm going to get distracted and have to reread whatever I was just trying to read. 
Um, so personally, I found it extremely useful to identify a study space quickly that I could have to myself without distraction. Um, so luckily on Nova's campus, we have, um, they're, they're called problem-based learning rooms, and it's just absolutely perfect for what I needed. Um, and then also a big, big factor, depending on your living situation. So I lived at home with my family, with two dogs, with just distractions left and right. Um, so I, what I really found extremely useful was to find a space that I can actually be not disturbed, focus on myself, um, and and just kind of go through my my videos and everything I needed to get through that day. Um, so yeah, I was definitely an individual studier, but then I would also kind of have a backup as if I needed help with something. Luckily, I could turn to my friends and we could spend an afternoon t discussing different topics that we needed help with. Um, so I think a little bit of a hybrid of both, but but definitely leaning towards individual. What would you say about yourself, Matt? I think I'm very similar to you. I might even lean more towards the individual studying. I'm just for me, it's really hard to study when I'm in a group, and I kind of want to draw a distinction between kind of just studying and then kind of the case-based learning model as well, because they definitely complement each other, but they're definitely two very distinct things. So when it comes to the problem-based learning, the PBLs, kind of you go through a case for those who aren't familiar with it, and you get some information about a patient or a particular scenario, and then you have questions that are prompted from there, and it kind of guides your learning based on any particular area that you're in. So for us, the very first block was fundamentals, which is kind of a catch-all when it comes to medical school of biochemistry, kind of basic sciences and everything that goes into it, a little bit of microbiology and get a little bit of flashbacks, just thinking back to everything that, that went on to, to us in fundamentals. It was definitely not my favorite part of medical school, but I think it was very good in terms of preparing you for everything down the road. But when it comes to kind of the group studying, I think it was very helpful for PVL to have those around you. It was reassuring to know that everybody was more or less at a similar level starting off in terms of their understanding. You're able to explore cases together. And it was always particularly interesting that even though everybody was more or less at the same level, kind of overall, there was people with very pocketed areas of knowledge and of a particular interest for them. So if a case was in their wheelhouse, it was always amazing to have that one particular person in your group that knew the diagnosis from the very first sentence or from the very first paragraph, and they were able to jump on and kind of steer the group in the right direction. I was always very, very happy when we were able to do that. But Definitely, it was good to kind of discuss things moving forward, kind of understand and kind of evolve and really get involved within medical school as a community. Because as somebody who likes to study individually, sometimes medical school can be a little bit isolating where, similar to Jonathan, I need pretty much absolute silence around me when I'm studying. I am somebody who, when we're doing, I would sometimes try to get involved in group questions in terms of preparing for a test, and I am just not able to do that. I don't I feel like I don't know anything when that happens. Somebody jumps up to the answer, and then I have absolutely no idea whether I would have gotten the exact same answer, but I'm just happy to be along for the ride. So <laughs> for me, I need to do everything more or less on my own. But then I think similar to Jonathan, if there was anything where it was just baffling me, I'm not the smartest person in the world, where I definitely would be humble enough to reach out to my classmates that definitely knew a lot more than me and have them explain a concept, explain how they went about learning something to help correct myself and not get down a rabbit hole when it comes to that. So 
Unfortunately for the people that are huge into group studying, I don't know if we're necessarily the best people to, to give advice more as individual studiers, but as somebody who's seen a lot of different classmates go about studying in groups, they've found it tremendously valuable, the ability to have that camaraderie and still stay on task and not get too sidetracked, but get ideas bounced off each other, divide up labor in terms of you study this, I study that, we'll show it to each other and streamline the whole process. There's definitely people who absolutely thrive based on studying in a group like that. Just for me personally, I'm, I'm just not capable of it. Mm-hmm. There are definitely a lot of benefits to it. And again, it's it might work for some of you. It might not work for others. You know, it's it just totally depends on your personal preferences and the way your brain works. Um, but there's definitely, definitely a huge point to be made about the solitude that I felt a lot of times just going into a room, being by myself. And that was essentially how I was spending most of my days because you're you're studying nonstop for a long amount of time. Um, so I, I know we had a lot of friends who were very big on on being able to take a study break, go grab food together, just have a little bit of conversation. And then at the end of the day, they're still medical students. They're serious about what they're doing. So they're not just blabbering in the, the library all day, you know, so so that's definitely huge. And I would say when you're starting off medical school, if you don't know, I think I pretty much knew going into medical school that I was going to be more of an individual studier. But if you don't really know and you're thinking, am I going to thrive more just studying on my own in a group and a hybrid of the two, I would say just start exploring early on. Figure out what works for you. Just because you start studying in a group for the first couple of weeks, you need to have a self-reflection point a couple of weeks in and say, is this working for me? Am I learning what I need to learn? If yes, awesome. That's a great study model for you. It's a great way to go about doing it. If it's not working for you, maybe you can try a little bit more of a hybrid model where you're on your own a little bit more or if you're on your own fully. So just making sure you have those check-in points and you're being honest with yourself in terms of, am I learning what I need to learn? Is this helping me? Is it hindering me? Does it help me in some situations and not others? Just make sure you're constantly evaluating that and and have check-ins for that as well. Yeah, pretty much the beginning and the transition into becoming a medical student, there's going to be a lot of trial and error. You know, it's it's just a matter of seeing what works for you, you know, and, and that's why we're just going to lay out some options, try them out, see what works, see what doesn't, and then develop your own study habits. That's the most important thing. Absolutely. And Jonathan definitely mentioned that we were really fortunate to have these PBL rooms, which is kind of just a beautiful little study space. It has like a smart board up top with an Apple TV projector, Lots of nice seating areas to plug in your laptop. So you can really get comfortable in there. You can be alone. They're large enough to have decent-sized groups in them as well and start studying. But I'm not sure if every single school has that. So just kind of figuring out what works for you. I, mm-hmm. For me personally, I like to be in the PBL rooms for a little bit, but then I like to go home and study there. There are people who like to study at the Starbucks, Panera, coffee houses of the world as well. Mm-hmm. Again, similar to individual versus group in terms of deciding where to study, just kind of figuring out what works for you. My fiance has absolutely nothing to do with medical school. She's a geologist, so she studies rocks, which is completely different (laughs) than studying human beings. She needs background. She grew up playing music, so she needs music in the background. She needs the TV going in the background. She needs people talking around her. She needs distraction. Whereas I look at her studying and I just think it is an absolute nightmare and have absolutely no idea how she was able to get through undergrad and everything like that. But it totally worked for her very successful in what she does. So again, I think this is us just kind of hammering home the exact same point. You just really have to figure out what works for you and don't Mm -hmm. get locked into something. 
if it's not working for you just because that's what you started doing. So have that flexibility to kind of see individual versus group study and home versus at school versus somebody else and somewhere else and just kind of making sure you have that flexibility to kind of understand what's working and what's not. Definitely. And another thing to consider as well is what time of the day are you most productive? You know, I think that's a very important thing to ask yourself. So I've always been a night owl. Um, I just find that I can stay up late and I'd rather get a few extra hours of sleep in the morning. Um, and that works for me. Um, and luckily, um, we have access to 24 hour study rooms. So that that made my life a heck of a lot easier to have a safe space. Um, so, you know, you, you really just got to identify what your needs are and where that you can be safe and have all those needs for your studying to be met. You know, so just ponder that over, try and have some some different options and, and see what works for you. Oh, for sure. I think that's definitely a good point. I wasn't even considering time of day when we were going into this conversation. But for me, complete opposite. I wake up really early in the morning and I get my best studying done within the first couple hours of the day. So that's how I structured studying throughout my first year of medical school. I got a lot of the studying done, a lot of the reviews done first thing in the morning before we were even in class. So I was just kind of ready and set up well for the day because for me, my mind races a lot at night and I need just a couple, like an hour to unwind at the end of the day, whether it's spending time with my fiance, spending time or just talking to family, uh, going out with the dog that I have or just sitting down and watching TV. That time is super valuable for me when it came to the first two years of medical school and even now just having that time to kind of unwind your brain, get ready for bed and then kind of wake up early, well rested and ready to go. So yeah, that was definitely a good point for you to bring up in terms of time of day because everybody's different and I don't know if it's just me being super happy with myself. I think a lot of people are like, oh, I want to be a morning person and go studying. <laughs> you do not have to be a morning person to do well in medical school. You do not have to be up at four in the morning and just start grinding right away. Mm -hmm. I think there's more than a couple people in our class who are more than happy to kind of roll out a couple minutes before PBL started or class started, kind of just roll in and they got the best studying done in the end of the day. So again, just figure out what works for you. There's no mm -hmm. one size fits all solution. Morning people are not better than evening people. Evening people are not better than morning people. It's just finding out what kind of person you are and, and going from there. Yeah. The most important thing is holding yourself accountable and actually doing it. <laughs> you know, as soon as 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 soon as you figure out when it works, great. But just just make a point to do it. And that's, a, that's something I meant to mention a, about a, a positive of studying in a group setting is it definitely has someone there to hold you accountable. You know, if, if somebody's like, hey, we're, we're going to study, right? Then you're much more likely to actually do it. So if you find yourself being someone that just kind of pushes it off, like, oh, just another hour, just another hour of Netflix, and then I'll start studying, maybe a group setting might be a good way to try holding yourself accountable. I completely agree. I've definitely pushed off some things to study to the next day, the next week, the next month. So <laughs> you definitely want to make sure that you're holding yourself accountable if individual is yours, whereas, like you said, just the nature of group studying is definitely helpful when it comes to, to making sure everybody's accountable because you've got a time and everybody's going to be getting together right there and everybody's kind of dependent on each other to make sure they're studying. So it's definitely a, a huge plus to the group studying versus individual. Uh, with that, anything else you want to add to individual versus group? Um, no, I think that essentially sums it up. You know, I mean, it, it, again, it's really just a trial and error and see what works for you. And it doesn't have to be black or white one way or the other. 
Um, it could definitely be a mix. And especially, I highly suggest not, if you are an individual studier, um, which I was pretty much the whole way through, um, if you do get really caught on a subject, put it aside, keep going on something else, and then find someone to explain it to you because you'll want to like bang your head against the wall if you just sit there tr like reading a section of, of first aid or something that you're just like, why doesn't this make sense to me? You know, it, it makes it helps significantly to, to see it through someone else's perspective and help them try and explain it. So and also I found that to help maintain my productivity and just get through what I needed to and then come back to stuff if I was completely stuck on it and needed some help later on. Absolutely. I think that's, like I said, there's no universal for everything, but I really feel like that is definitely a universal in terms of if there's something that you don't know and you feel like you're banging your head against the wall and you're just completely wasting your time on it, you could look at that page of first aid for 16 more hours and get absolutely no closer to understanding what it's <laughs> trying to convey to you. It's best to move on. There's definitely other ways to, to process the information a little bit better. We've all been there. <laughs> oh, oh, no doubt. And then, if it's okay with you, I think I'm going to transition to one of the, the huge debates that happens very early on in medical school. It is the Anki versus no Anki. And there are very firm supporters for Anki. There's very firm supporters to never do Anki. I really don't know if there's too many people that kind of like dabble in it here and there. <laughs> felt like there was very clean cut camps in terms of I love Anki or I don't know if anybody loves Anki. They understand the need for Anki. And then there's those who just, it's not for me. I'm not going to pick it up. So for those who don't know, Anki is an application just based on spaced repetition over time. And pretty much you are just doing flashcards and the flashcards gives you a little bit of a piece of information. And then based on how well you know it, it puts it off into the future. So if you reviewed the card, Many, many, many times you might not see that card for several months. If it's something that you're struggling with and you say, I don't know this particular card, it's just going to get shoved back in your face again and again and again until you finally end up knowing it is more or less the, the philosophy behind Anki and the whole spaced repetition. And there's definitely some science behind it to kind of prove in terms of retention over time that it's, it's very valuable, but it's definitely not for everybody and it can definitely get monotonous. So, Jonathan, I'm curious to see what your, your opinion is on Anki, whether you used it or not, and kind of what your, what your thoughts are on it. Yeah, and that was a great intro relating to it. Um, so it's, a, it's definitely a polarizing topic, <laughs> and it's, people find it very useful. Some people find it useless, honestly. Um, so I tried to get into it myself, but I found my own personal studying was much more efficient if I utilized other things. Um, so I actually, I tried to get into it because I saw so many of my classmates loving it and succeeding with it, but honestly, it just wasn't the way that my brain worked. I found that I would like kind of zone out with the cards. Um, and then there's, you, you also need to be very accountable and not just keep tapping the space bar, but if you actually get it wrong, you know, then you gotta, <laughs> you gotta say you got it wrong or, oh yeah, I knew it when you see the answer, you know, so um, so it, it definitely works for some people. I would say I found greater success in med school um, when I geared my studying more towards uh, videos that explain things and then actually applying the knowledge through question banks myself. How about you, Matt? What was your opinion? I was huge on Anki. For me, I just was kind of fascinated by it. For me, I always studied well with flashcards, but I just hated the grind of having to like write out individual flashcards. I remember 
before med school, when I had that, like I was mentioning, kind of anxious about everything going on, I bought a huge stack of flashcards ready to like write out a whole bunch of stuff. And I just remember <laughs> staring at it. I'm like, oh, it's going to be absolutely brutal to just go through, write everything out and then keep track of all of these flashcards. There's just no way. And fortunately, we had some people who had already been in the school before us and they clued us into Anki and I'm pretty, pretty hesitant, actually, initially. I didn't know how well it would actually work. I didn't understand. I think for me, a lot of it came down to trust. Because for Anki, there's pre-made decks where it kind of eliminated the, the giant hurdle of me having to write out the flashcards. There was decks that was already made with information that is pretty much geared towards your step exam. Step one, when you're in kind of first and second year, and then there's one for step two in terms of getting prepared for that. And for me, it was really nice having that available to me, but I'm definitely not the most trusting person. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I initially trusted that the deck would have everything that I need to do well in pre-clerkship in terms of the exams that come along. And I don't, I definitely didn't trust it in terms of making sure it had all the information that I needed to do well on step one, because Jonathan and I were in the, the unique position. I guess it's not so unique, but we were the pretty much the last class that's going to have a graded mm-hmm. step one score. And yep. it was definitely a big deal for a lot of people in our class, regardless of what specialty they wanted to go into and how competitive they were in terms of looking at step one. We were at a brand new school, and it was nice to just have the ability, at least talking for myself, to have a score associated with you when it came to step one. Because there's a lot of uncertainty that comes with a brand new school in terms of how is the education relative to other programs? How are we performing relative to everybody else in the nation? And having that score early on was definitely something that I valued in terms of having a score so I could help differentiate myself relative to everybody else in medical school within the United States. So I was definitely excited about having step one, having a score associated with that. But then, like I said, going back to Anki, I didn't know how well it would actually prepare me for it. So I think I paired Anki with a lot of different resources. And if it sounds like we're being nebulous right now, we kind of are being a little bit Mm -hmm. nebulous. We're going to go through some of the different resources that are fairly commonly Mm -hmm. used in medical school and in particularly at at our school there. But I think Anki, looking back, was definitely a huge help for me. And it definitely had a lot of the content that I needed to perform well, both on our exams and within step one. Definitely. And I know it worked very well for a lot of people. Um, and actually, I had one kind of question for you. Um, what deck did you like to use? Did you ever switch between multiple Anki decks? Like, what was your kind of strategy that you found most effective for step one and step two, say? Yeah, so I'll go for step one. I went all out. So there was the Lightyear deck, which has a ton of different cards. And then there was the Anking deck, which had mm-hmm. a ton of different cards as well. And I did both decks, which was, looking nice. back... And unbelievably, I don't think it was the wisest thing to do. I don't think it was a good use of my time. But then again, I said I was not the most trusting. And if you're not trusting of one deck having all the information you need, why not just add on another deck? Which, again, in retrospect, was definitely not the most efficient way to do things. But I think I was relatively good with kind of suspending cards, which you can do in Anki. And make sure if you already have a card that's similar to this, it doesn't pop up for you again. I felt like I was fairly disciplined where I was not getting a significant amount of duplication of cards, but I still think I had some. Mm-hmm. So I think that was definitely something that helped prepare me for step one, get me ready for that. And then for step two, I, I pared it down where I just did the one deck like most most people in medical school where I did the Onking deck. And mm-hmm. I think that was more than sufficient to get me prepared between going through the clerkships, which we'll touch on later, 
and then building towards step two, which moving forward is probably going to be the, the big exam since it's the only one that has a score for, for future medical students in the U.S. So definitely there's a ton of different decks, and I know people have done other ones other than the Lightyear and the Onking that I mentioned, but again, like I was saying earlier, it's just going to be the theme, and I'm going to continue harping back on it, kind of figure out what works for you. The mm-hmm. decks are worded a little bit different, and they kind of do fill in the blank a little bit different. Some are more open-ended. So figure out what works for you. Experiment for a couple initially and kind of figure out what kind of questions you like, what's actually making your brain know the answer rather than just kind of recognize the card, say the answer, and not understand why. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a huge thing, and Jonathan mentioned that for some people when they're doing Anki and going through the flashcards, they're not actually learning, they're not actually going through and retaining the information. It's just... I recognize that card. This is the answer to the card. And then a good follow-up question that you should ask yourself is, why is that the answer to the card? Definitely. And I think that's definitely lost, especially on people who are very competitive and want to say, I have a streak of X amount of days and I do X amount of cards an hour. I'm so efficient. Well, there's efficiency and then there's also efficiency in terms of you're actually learning what you need to learn. So Mm -hmm. again, definitely a lot that goes into Anki and I found it to be a huge help despite my hesitance initially. But again, it's absolutely not necessary to do extremely well in medical school. Mm -hmm. And I will say something to keep in mind, if you do utilize Anki, it's great for knowing facts, but something that is so, so important for exams is knowing the facts and then knowing how to utilize that information to extrapolate a two-layered question. Because it's not just enough to know a specific fact, but they're going to make sure that you know that fact and then say, okay, what is the pathophysiology behind the actual illness going on here? So it's two layers. So, you, so you, it's very different than prior exams during undergrad. Um, so that's definitely something that you want to utilize. It's a very useful tool, but like, for example, for example, when, uh, when you're on dedicated study, which we'll get to later, you do not want to just grind Anki the whole time. It's you, You're not going to get the useful practice in actually applying the knowledge in ways that you need to know how to do. Absolutely. So Anki is definitely something that's extremely helpful for medical school, but it's not the be-all, end-all. Like I said, there's people who do well without it, and those that do it, it is one tool, it's one resource among many others that you need to be successful within medical school or that is helpful to be successful within medical school. So I think we've done enough kind of alluding to some of these different resources and everything that went into it. I think we're going to go through some of the, the specifics ones that we have experience with, that we know some of our classmates have experience with. And I'm going to throw a little bit of a curveball and just start off with the first resource being lecture, dun, specifically dun, dun. <laughs> lecture from the school. Uh, Jonathan, kind of what are your thoughts on lecture? How did you incorporate it? Did it evolve in terms of how you went about approaching lecture within the first year, year or two of medical school? Yeah, it was interesting. So most of our lectures were optional, you know, so attendance wasn't mandatory. Um, and so that essentially, it, it really kind of depends on how your school's exams are structured. I think that is what's going to make it or break it as far as being an actual useful resource. Um, so for example, our school, all of our test questions, all of our exams come out of the old NBME exams that are retired questions. Um, so that made it very, very useful for us to know, okay, we need to focus on board relevant content um, as opposed to some other friends that I have that go to different schools throughout the country who they have their lecturers are the ones that write their questions. 
Um, so I think I, so the way that I did it was I, instead of using that time to go to lecture, I used it to go through some, some of the other resources that we're about to talk to. I found that to be a very useful way to spend my time. Um, however, that being said, if, if my lecturers were the ones writing the exams, I would have been there to listen, notice what they're emphasizing, and then utilizing that to perform better on the school exams. Um, what was your what was your impression of of lecture, Matt? I think it was very similar to yours. I know beginning off in fundamentals, which is our very first block, like I said, kind of the biochemistry and everything. I went to lecture pretty religiously for the first month or so of medical school. Again, highly anxious person here, wanted to make sure I wasn't <laughs> missing anything. Didn't trust that lecture would not be necessary to do well on the exams because I kind of just drew from my experience whenever I was in high school, whenever I was in undergrad, you needed to go to the lectures, you needed to have an understanding of what the professor was teaching in order to do well on exams. However, I quickly learned that, like Jonathan alluded to, we have an MBME-based exam system for our particular school, which for me was tremendous because it allowed me to really focus on getting ready for step one from pretty much day one because you can start building towards those questions. There's a way that they're written that a lot of professors writing their own questions aren't able to do. There's just like a different skill set. There's so much that actually goes into writing an NBME question, so much validation, so much understanding of kind of everything that could possibly be the answer. So it was really nice having a question bank that they could pull questions from, and then I can just prepare for that question bank alone. Because like Jonathan was saying, there's people at other medical schools where if a professor has a particular area of interest that is tangentially at best related to medicine and they just are absolutely interested in it you can pretty much guarantee that's going to be on the test they're passionate about it they can't imagine somebody not being passionate about it because they've dedicated a significant portion of their life studying it so they think it's important for you to know that as well and for me it was really nice to be able to streamline that out it's definitely cool to kind of learn what professors are interested in and can lead to some research opportunities if you're interested in it for kind of m1 m2 and Definitely a good way to kind of network within the community and kind of embed yourself within the medical school. But if you're really looking to step one, it's not going to, in my opinion, it's not going to be the most efficient way to get ready for step one. It's not going to be an efficient way to kind of set yourself up for the shelf exams later on, which we'll, we'll talk about. But lecture was definitely something that I'm glad I went to. I'm glad that I stopped going to it. And I definitely saw some value in terms of going there. I saw some lacking areas in terms of not going there, in terms of when you have lecture, it kind of enforces a certain discipline on you and that we alluded to earlier kind of making sure your discipline the lectures held at one specific time and if you want to be ready for the lecture you got to be ready for the lecture so that's definitely a, a part of it but for me after that first month I was definitely not a lecture goer and I don't think I necessarily sacrificed anything in terms of my performance on exams and and anything later on. I agree. And I mean being the way our school is set up the the vast majority of us felt that way. Um, where there were definitely some some consistent lecture goers. Um, but the way I ultimately utilized it was I found it as a resource that I could use to ask an expert if I was really stuck on a certain topic. Um, then if they're going to be lecturing on it, it's great to hear their perspective. And also keep in mind, I mean, people have different lecturing styles. And realistically, some people are going to be better teachers than others. So if you find somebody that you mesh with that you think gives a great perspective and you learn from well, go to theirs, especially, you know, and especially if they're mandatory, make sure you're there. <laughs> you know, we, we were lucky enough to have the option. Oh, for sure. And then 
For me, it was always, I remember sitting in some of the lectures initially and Jonathan alluded to the different teaching styles, presentation styles. There's some people that just read from their slides and I can read from their slides faster than they can talk their slides. So for me, it was kind of like I said, having that reflection point after a month in or so, is this actually benefiting me? Is there a better use of my time? And for me doing that personal assessment, I thought there was a better use for my time using different resources. Other people in our class did that exact same thing same evaluation, they saw benefit of continuing to go to lecture at that point. However, at the end, you did, you were correct that the attendance definitely dwindled. And I, I felt <laughs> a little bit bad because you feel like these professors spend so much time and they're so passionate and this is what they love to do. And it's, it's I, I, don't, I just feel sad that they put all this time going into preparing these particular presentations and there's two or three people sitting in the audience. So that's fair. Know. That is fair. So if lecture wasn't your favorite thing, what would you say was your most useful resource throughout your M1 year? Throughout my M1 year, I would definitely say it was Boards and Beyond. It was definitely the best way for me to go ahead and learn. Uh, for everybody, anybody who doesn't know, Boards and Beyond is a subscription service online that covers a huge swath of area of medical school and a lot of different topics and a fairly significant amount of depth that you actually need to, to perform well on NBME style exams, whether it's an in-house one or on step one. And Boards and Beyond is divided up into different broad topic areas in terms of kind of cardiology, basic science, pulmonology, and then there's videos on subtopics within that for anybody who's not familiar with it. And I think for me, it just did a really good job of it. it gave enough depth that I was able to understand everything, but it wasn't too much depth that I felt like I was getting lost in the weeds, like in some of the lectures that I was in. And then it was also just the convenience of it. It wasn't, I had to be at lecture from eight o'clock till 10 o'clock. I could watch these videos at any particular point, And I felt like they were very relevant to, to gearing towards the exams that we did have in house. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm curious, Jonathan, what were your thoughts in terms of kind of the, the best resources to, to use? Mm -hmm. 100% same thing. Boards and Beyond was my best friend when I was, especially during my M1 year. Um, and it, I thought it gave a really great like basis of knowledge um, that, that really, really helped. Like anytime there was going to be a session in class the next day on a certain topic, I would check to see if there was a Boards and Beyond video about it. Um, because it's he, he does a great job of explaining things in a way that's pretty easily digested. Um, you get the slides. And also, it's it's one of those resources that, like, you get the, the benefit of hearing something complicated, being like, what? And then reverse, like, going back 30 seconds and listening to it again. Um, and I found that so invaluable to, to have material actually stick when it's a little bit more complicated. So, yeah, I would say Boards and Beyond for sure. Um, something I did forget to mention when we were talking about lecture that I think is important to throw out there is it's a free resource, whereas a lot of these other resources can get very expensive very quickly. Um, so another thing to keep in mind is you don't want to like have all these resources at once. You want to figure out what's good for you and stick to it. So that's that's your budgeting is definitely an important factor to keep in consideration when we're discussing these different these different resources. Got it. So we touched on lecture. We touched on boards and beyond, which is definitely a valuable resource. Uh, another one that was very popular, I, I used it throughout my first and second year as well, is is Pathoma. And it's similar to boards and beyond. I wouldn't necessarily say it's quite as comprehensive mm -hmm. as boards and beyond in terms of covering all of the different areas. I think they complement each other very well. There is some overlap, 
but I think Pathoma does a much better job of kind of just going through some of the pathophysiology and and explaining in a way that's really understandable. You can, again, similar style to Boards and Beyond, you can play the videos at your leisure, divide it up based on topics that you're specifically in. But I think he does a very good job of drawing things out and explaining things in a way that Boards and Beyond does not always do that. Uh, for Boards and Beyond, it can be very cut and dry. It's a lot of information and it's a lot of quote-unquote high-yield information, which is a common buzzword in medical school <laughs> for high-yield for step one in terms of it's a lot of concepts that are very relevant and very commonly tested. And Boards and Beyond can, I find, sometimes be a little bit dry. In Pathoma, I felt like he did a good job of explaining things in a way that I can grasp fairly easily. However, like I said, I don't think it's quite as expansive. I don't think it's quite as comprehensive as Boards and Beyond. I wouldn't necessarily completely rely on Pathoma and Pathoma alone. Mm-hmm. Did you use Pathoma at all, Jonathan? I did, and I totally agree. I think it's a perfect supplement and a one-two punch with Pathoma and Boards and Beyond. There is that little bit of redundancy, but honestly, I think that's a great thing. I, it cannot hurt to hear valuable information multiple times. That just goes to show it's important stuff that you need to know. Um, but yeah, you're right. He he did a great job of, of diagramming, um, of really just kind of setting things. That's easier to digest than like a lot of other ways that the material can be presented to you. So I think it, it was a very, very useful thing. Oh, no, I, I completely agree with that. And then I think another resource that a lot of people hear, and it's kind of hard to grasp what exactly it is from, <laughs> from the outset, is sketchy. I know, remember, like I said, we were there during their orientation week, and everybody's just bombarding us with these different resources, the boards and beyond, the pathoma, and then the sketchy. And then you kind of hear sketchy, and you're like, they just draw random pictures, <laughs> and then you're somehow able to remember stuff. It just didn't click for me just hearing it. And then I finally splurged and got sketchy which was definitely one of the more expensive resources to get and i use sketchy for pharmacology as well as for microbiology mm-hmm. and i'm a huge visual learner and it just it just clicked for me like i could watch a video one time i'd have it on my ipad and i was just drawing along and kind of writing down the pertinent for information as the illustrator would talk through the images kind of explain the images and it's kind of hard for me to explain like what exactly is sketchy just kind of verbally, but there's just pictures and they have relevant connections to medicine, relevant connections to microbiology, and it helps to helps you to learn things that there's really just not a good way to learn other than brute memorization, and it gives mm-hmm. you a bit of an anchor in your mind. If, if you remember that picture, you remember what something represented, it can help trigger that memory in your head. And for me, it just, it works spectacularly well for microbiology as well as pharmacology. That was definitely my, my go-to resource for those. I, what was your thought on, on Sketchy? I could not agree more. Um, I've told multiple people I don't think I would actually be graduating medical school without Sketchy. Um, it just, first off, like, okay, so so something I meant was going to mention, I think the term that they use, is, it's an, it's a memory anchor, um, where essentially, yeah, it's it's like, it's just insane how they can draw a cartoon, they can make it funny, it's you're entertained while they're explaining everything, and then you're able to think back on a specific bug or a specific drug and just be like, whoa, I know all these different board-relevant facts about it. You know, So it was extremely useful. And a lot of my friends, we would kind of almost consider it a study break, honestly, because it was so chill and easy to just sit there, digest it, and then just 
keep like thinking back on the picture and then like if you there, you could have Anki decks where you look at the different um, sketchy images and then that immediately makes it stick really really well um, so I would highly suggest um, trying it out seeing if it's for you because it helps a lot of people for brute memorization purposes I was always terrible at just okay here's here's a list of facts combine them and just think about that when you think of a certain micro bug and so yeah it's sketchy would highly recommend yeah like i was saying i use sketchy mainly for microbiology as well as pharmacology but i do know they have some sketchies when it comes to more pathophysiology and i believe they've come up with some more for biochemistry mm -hmm. i never used it for that did you have any experience using it in kind of the pathophysiology and if so i'd be curious to mm -hmm. to see what you have to say so i was actually one of the weirdos that used sketchy path <laughs> um but not always like what i would use it for was if there was just a specific illness that like i could just not associate everything i needed to and i was just struggling to try and remember everything about it I would watch their like five minute video and then I would be able to to really, really get through it, it a lot easier. Like for me, what really stuck out was uh, multiple endocrine neoplasia. I was like really trying to get, I know there were three Ps, but which one is it? Two A, two B, you know? And and so uh, so the sketchy just immediately set, stuck it in my head and it's, it's still there. Um, so I would say it's useful, but there's way too many videos to go through all of them. I would say give it a try for certain pathophys that you're stuck on. Yeah, no, I definitely feel like that was that was approach. I for whatever reason, I, my brain just never wanted to give it a try when it came to pathology. Mm -hmm. I felt like I got my boards and beyond. I got my pathoma on my side. I don't need to crowd out my mind with adding another resource. But I'm sure, like I'm sure it would have really helped me because, like I said, I I absolutely loved it for microbiology and loved it for pharmacology and. I'm sure it would have done well. I'm very curious what it would have been like for biochemistry. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't the Krebs see that. Cycle. I, I, know, I feel like you could learn the Krebs cycle through Sketchy. Uh, there's always the joke of learning the Krebs cycle, forgetting the Krebs cycle is the Krebs cycle. And I believe I'm in the, the twilight of I've kind of forgotten the Krebs cycle a little bit at this point. So maybe if I did Sketchy, it would have just kind of anchored in right there. <laughs> but I will say um, after, after a certain point, it's it's like okay what picture was where you know it's like if you have sketchy overload i feel like that can make it tough to really keep its value and and keep things straight in your head so that's that's important and then that's where the anki can come in and help like cement what image is associated with what specific thing you're trying to study perfect and i think i was guilty of bringing this up earlier in in the podcast without defining what first aid is I mean, when I first heard first aid, I'm like, is it like a Band-Aid? Is it like a kit? And then, no, it is a tremendously thick book that has a lot of the information, like I said, the quote-unquote high-yield information when it comes to getting ready for step one. And there's also one for step two as well and step three, looking down the road, all the, all the fun steps that you have moving <laughs> forward. But it's, again, it's divided up based on kind of the basic sciences, then there's the cardiology, pulmonology, everything along those lines. And it just gives a lot of the high yield information that you need to have as a basis when it comes to getting ready for step one. The way I used first aid was pretty much as a check. I felt like boards and beyond was kind of more or less like first aid in video form with a little bit more information, a little bit more coherence to it. It wasn't kind of just pure bullet points. There was some explanation going on there, understanding there's some things that aren't necessarily the easiest to learn. But first aid was a really good resource for me that once I went through the boards and beyond, I went through the pathoma, 
I went through the sketchy and then I did all my Anki cards and everything for it, I would just kind of skim it and just make sure there was nothing that I didn't hit on through my different resources. Kind of that kind of like feedback loop to make sure that I'm not missing anything that I should be actually studying at this point. Again, it's a very good resource. I always kind of just flip through it a couple days before an exam or the day before an exam just to make sure there was not some huge area that I didn't study in preparation for it. What were your thoughts mm -hmm. on, on first aid? Yeah, um, I mean, a, a lot of people know first aid as the medical student Bible. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it really does a great job of being very efficient with how they present the info. Um, it's easy to kind of look at it and it kind of sticks in your head better than a lot of other books would. It's not just a giant like block of text. Um, so that's really helpful. Um, but again, it's, I mean, I've heard med students say, if it's not in first aid, I don't need to know it. I would definitely not agree with that sentiment. Um, but I will say it's high yield. And that's at the end of the day, a first year medical student is like, like salivating at the words high yield. Um, so it's, it's definitely a very valuable resource that I think everyone in our class had. And it's, uh, I, and something that I would especially like to do is um, I would utilize it after I got a question wrong on a question bank. Um, I would just quickly flip through um, and then see like what the info is in there. And then a lot of the times there it is. Okay. And then the more you see it, the more it sticks. Um, and then so that way I can specifically target the things that I need to brush up on when I get a question wrong. Oh, for sure. And I think that's a good transition point in terms of kind of switching over to some resources that are more focused as as question banks and getting ready for kind of all your exams, getting ready for step one in the future when you're an M1 and kind of everything like that. So kind of just to summarize some of the different ones we spoke of, because it's definitely a lot and it's hard to kind of process when you're first starting in medical school. So there's lecture. A lot of them are optional. Uh, there's definitely some value in going. They're not necessarily always the most efficient. And there's definitely professors that have areas of particular interest, whether it's research or anything like that. So they're of huge value. If you have a similar area of interest in research, you can go meet up with them, kind of learn in that particular setting. Uh, we just mentioned first aid, which is again kind of the, the medical student Bible, where it kind of has the bare bones in terms of these are this is what you kind of need to know. Boards and Beyond is a little bit more of an expanded first aid with some details, verbal explanations, online resource. Pathoma is quite similar to Boards and Beyond, but explained in, in a different manner, a little bit more concise. There's definitely not nearly the same amount of, of video hours in Pathoma as there is in Boards and Beyond. And then Sketchy, where it's kind of just the, the memory anchors with, it sounds crazy, the different pictures, but it was definitely an effective way for a lot of medical students to learn the microbiology, learn pharmacology, and then there's also the option of, of using that when it comes to pathology as well as some of the, the microbiome as well too. So I think that kind of is a broad overview of a lot of the resources that people used in our medical school in terms of, of getting ready and preparing themselves for success in, in first and second year. Any resources that you would add that you don't think we necessarily hit on? Um, no, outside of question banks, not really. Um, I will say uh, when I was first being told about all these different resources, I was originally under the impression that everyone's saying, oh, this research works, this, and then, oh, this other resource works. And then I was like, okay, I need to use all of them. But that is that is not the case. Um, you, you don't have enough time. There's just way too much material. So you got to find the way that whatever resource suits your learning and stick with it and do it well and consistently. Awesome. I, I completely agree with that. 
I guess, again, shifting gears now towards the question banks, which I feel like a lot of these resources prepare you, and then you kind of test yourself when it comes to the, the question banks. And there's some common ones that a lot of people in our class use. I think I'll save the, the big gun for last, which is, <laughs> is UWorld, which kind of has its own kind of pristine area when it comes to, to medical students. But I'll start off with USMLERX. And that's one that I use as kind of my very first question bank. Mm -hmm. So when I feel like I finally went through all of the concepts that I needed for a particular topic area, I went through my boards and beyond, my Pathoma, uh, if Sketchy was relevant, and I was caught up on my Anki cards, and I felt like I had the foundation. At that point, I felt like I was ready to start testing myself with questions. I wasn't somebody who liked to just jump into questions right away and kind of learn from the questions. I obviously have to learn from the questions, and they're a huge resource for learning. But for me, I wanted to get a big understanding of the entire topic area first. I can't just learn through a random question here, a random question there. I like to see the whole picture, how it connects together. And I felt like I couldn't do that with a random question coming here, a random question coming there. But with the different resources, I was able to get an understanding of the general area of that particular area of medicine. And once I felt like I had a solid understanding, then I felt, okay, I can jump to the question banks and see how well I actually get the global picture of this. And the question bank for USMLERX, which is fairly similar to other ones, you can filter the questions based on what particular area that you're studying. So if you only want to look at biochemistry questions, you can only look at biochemistry questions, and those are going to be the ones that are coming up. And it's always awful when you feel like you collect all the, all the right things and you forgot to, to check off a box, and all of a sudden you're getting cardiology questions, <laughs> and you're three weeks into medical school, and you have absolutely no idea what's going on. So... Definitely make sure you're, you're double-checking when you're setting up all of those tests for yourself. But for USMLERX, I felt like it was a very basic level style of questions. That being said, I didn't always do particularly well on them and definitely was a good way to identify. I feel like I had an understanding of an area, but I really don't. And I need to review this particular video. I need to review this particular concept area, either through reading or, or like I said, through the video. And it was just a good kind of initial test to see I think I know this, how well do I actually know this? And that's how I use USMLERX. What were your thoughts? Did you use it at all? Because I yeah. know there's... Yeah, that was my, my first uh, test bank as well. Um, and I agree with everything you said. You know, I mean, it's it's very useful. Um, I So I was someone that was closer to the jump right into questions. Not not quite entirely. Like I would watch like videos. I'd do my boards and beyond and Pathoma first, say. Um, but instead of cranking through Anki cards after that, I would just immediately try and start applying the knowledge. Um, and USMLERX, it does a, a pretty darn good job of actually having questions that, that seem like the way the board style questions should be. Um, and something I absolutely loved about it, I don't know if it's by the same people, but it, they make it very um, relatable with first aid. So they, they, after in each question breakdown, which is an excellent explanation, um, they'll give you a specific page in first aid to to refer to. Um, so so that was something that kind of jumping back and forth between that, I found very, very valuable. Um, and really some a rule of thumb that, so I absolutely loved question banks. I found that to be the best way that I would study. Um, and really the important way to go about question banks is to really thoroughly understand the explanation. So don't just be like, yeah, I got the question right, let's keep moving. So I would go through each question and then first off understand why I got the question right, but then 
furthermore, why the other four options are wrong. And then, you know, so, so then you're really learning five different chunks of information all at once in many questions. Um, so it's a very useful way to, to utilize it. And then really, it's just excellent practice actually applying the knowledge. Um, because it, it really took a big adjustment period for me to understand board style questions um, and really just how to do it quickly, how to actually understand what they're trying to get and how to do that all in 90 seconds. Um, so it, uh, test banks are a very highly valuable resource and make sure to a lot enough time in your study schedule for them, I would suggest. Yeah, I completely agree. And I don't know if it was just my impression or kind of just speaking with people. I felt like USMLERX was almost looked down on as a question bank. Mm -hmm. I have no idea why. I found it to be a very good question bank. It was a good first pass that I always used. I think people just hold UWorld, which is another question bank, in such high regard that they think every anything other than that is less good. But I feel like USMLERX was definitely a solid question bank to kind of get you primed, see how you're going about learning everything and help identify areas that you might not know. And then Jonathan hit on the absolute most important part when it comes to doing these question banks is to study the answers and not only to study the answers, to study the wrong answers too. Because a lot of times they're designing these tests with wrong answers specifically in mind. They're not just randomly picking these wrong answers. There's something in the question stem that they know might lead you to that specific answer. And when you kind of start understanding that and dissecting questions, it can really go a long way to how you perform on the exam because you can have the exact same knowledge base as somebody else in your class, but might not be performing as well because you're not able to dissect these questions quite like they are because there's definitely a science that goes into building it, building the questions and a science that goes into dissecting them as a student and getting to the right answer. Uh, so that was USMLE RX. Another one is Kaplan. I never actually used Kaplan. For whatever reason in my mind, I kind of figured USMLE RX and Kaplan are interchangeable. So you can kind of just pick one and go with the other. I didn't know if there'd be additional benefit of using Kaplan. Uh, did you use Kaplan at all? Unfortunately, no. Um, so yeah, I, I found USMLERX early and stuck with it. Um, I do know we had a decent amount of classmates that utilized it. Um, I think they really liked the way the information was presented in it. Um, but unfortunately, I don't really have a great amount of detail that I can give. But it's, it's, it's an option that you, you could look into if, if you're so interested. I completely agree. Again, I can't elaborate on it either, but I think USMLE and RX and Kaplan are both very good question banks. And then I think you can go ahead with picking one versus the other. If you're super ambitious, you can do both. But I think there's some other question banks that kind of render you doing both not necessarily the best idea. If you have the time, go for it. I don't think a lot of people would have the time, especially <laughs> in M1 year. So Speaking of other banks, AMBOSS was definitely something that became extremely popular with our class. And I classified it as a question bank, but there's a huge arm of AMBOSS that is also kind of just general information that's very valuable in, in learning in medical school. You can type in any particular disease state, anything, and it's going to give you a lot of good information about it and a good way to learn. But from a question bank perspective, I thought AMBOSS was an absolutely phenomenal question bank. Uh, that being said, I think there were some questions in AMBOSS that definitely left you feeling a little bit discouraged, and I felt like there was absolutely no way I would ever get a question like that on any of the shelf exams, or not shelf exams, in any of the exams from M1, M2, or on Step 1, but I felt like it was such a comprehensive question bank. It has a ton of questions, and it has varying degrees of questions, and they give it the, the hammer, and if you get a five-hammer question, it's you know you're getting a five hammer question you have no idea what the answer is going to be but 
I've found that to be an extremely useful question bank, and that's usually where I would go after USMLERX. What was your mm-hmm. what were your thoughts on Amboss? So honestly, I never used Amboss as a question bank. Um, it was a extremely useful resource as far as learning content. Um, whenever we had to do presentations on certain illnesses, I loved using Amboss. It was a great way to have like easy charts. Um, but yeah, honestly, I didn't utilize it as a question bank, so I don't want to lie and act like I know. <laughs> oh, you did not experience the five hammer questions demoralizing you at home. It sounds oh, like fun. <laughs> so much fun. Um, and then with that, I think we're going to transition over to UWorld. And I think UWorld definitely holds a spot as the question bank when it comes to getting ready for step one. It's kind of, quote unquote, the gold standard when it comes to question banks. And a lot of people have different approaches to how to use UWorld. And I think the common approach that applies to everybody, and we've already alluded to it, is the huge benefit of UWorld is in the explanations after you answer the question. Mm -hmm. So even if you get the question wrong, well, especially if you get the question wrong, you want to read it. But even if you get the question right, there's so much learning to do through reading through the explanations of why the other answers were not correct. And for me, I learned a tremendous amount from that. And it has different symptoms, kind of different explanations that you I did not get in any of the other resources and boards and beyond, Pathoma, first aid, anything like that. And for me, it was a huge, huge resource in terms of getting ready throughout my first and second year of medical school. Jonathan, what were your mm-hmm. thoughts on, on UWorld, the, the yeah. vaunted UWorld? <laughs> so, so now as a almost graduated medical student, UWorld is the most thorough and well-explained question bank that I could think could have ever existed. I mean, it's I'm very impressed with it. Um, so in my own personal experience, I wish that I started UWorld earlier than I did. Um, so I... I basically saved it for dedicated, only did one pass through it. Um, and honestly, I think, I mean, I guess that's jumping ahead to M2. Um, but I think the more that you can see all, all the UWorld questions, the better. Um, it's really, really board relevant. It's very close to the actual exam. Um, so I would suggest, I mean, a lot of people say saving it for dedicated. I've heard that like recommended from a few people. Um, but honestly, I would definitely suggest in as soon as you start thinking, okay, I'm really, really studying for step one, um, be that whenever, I mean, you think is right for you, start with UWorld when you can. Um, I would say the biggest downside of UWorld is the ridiculous price of it. Um, it's definitely, I think, the most costly resource we've mentioned. Um, and luckily, our school um, had that kind of where they gave each student a UWorld subscription. Um, and so that kind of alleviated that burden for us somewhat. Um, but it's definitely something to keep in mind. But honestly, I don't, I think if I didn't have it for boards, it would have really significantly hurt my score. Um, so I think that's kind of just one of those costs that you have to eat as a medical student. It seems pretty necessary for most people, at least. Yeah, and then again, we're both coming from the perspective when we were using UWorld for step one, we were going to get a score at the end of the day. That's and fair. That adds a tremendous amount of pressure and it kind of made UWorld, like I said, the vaunted UWorld that it was, the best question bank. It's going to get you the score that you want because, you know, residency programs are going to be looking at your step one score. So it was huge. I'm not sure how it's going to be used nowadays. I think it's still something that you absolutely have to go through and getting ready for step one, even if it is pass fail. 
it's just such a good learning resource. It's going to prepare you well for step one, and it's going to prepare you well for step two down the road. And you might not even be thinking about that at the time. But mm -hmm. going back to what Jonathan said in terms of kind of when to use UWorld, we were lucky that we were given, I believe it was a year subscription to yeah. UWorld. Yep. And I timed that to kind of, we knew generally when we were going to be taking step one, and then you have a dedicated period at most schools before you take step one, which can be anywhere from four weeks. Sometimes people take a little bit longer if they really wanted to, to get a really good score on it. So when I was planning out UWorld, I activated it kind of one year from when I thought I was going to be taking my step one exam. And then I used it throughout my first year of medical school and my second year of medical school building up to that, which I think is contrary to a lot of what a lot of people said. I know Jonathan said it was a good idea to kind of use it throughout. And I just remember everybody giving me the advice, you want to save UWorld for dedicated so you know where you stand because it's a good reflection of how much you know. And I think I kind of didn't necessarily agree completely with that logic. I think it is good to know where you stand. But for me, doing UWorld, the biggest benefit of it was the learning from UWorld and actually going through all the explanations, incorporating that into my study and learning that earlier on. So for me, yes, it would have been nice to know exactly where I stood in UWorld within the dedicated time period, but I think I place so much more value on having a bunch of time to learn the concepts that UWorld describes and outlines and prioritizes within its questions to spread that out over the course of a year rather than jamming all of that into one month. So I think that was my approach. I definitely would recommend that. It worked really well for myself. I think there's some people who would say, you know what, it's, it is worth saving. It is worth having that confirmation that once you've gone through all of your first and all of your second year and you're getting ready for step one, you want to know where you stand. And this question bank is brutally honest in terms of letting <laughs> you know where you stand. So I think that's definitely a, a good option there. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with your perspective where it's, it's a learning tool. You know, you don't need to get every question right to be benefiting from the whole time you're studying it. Um, so I think it's, it's something that can be frustrating, but using it to actually like gain knowledge and enhance what your basis already is, um, is, is pivotal, honestly. I, so I, I would say, so my experience with step one was I used it only for dedicated. Um, my experience for step two was I was using it as long as I could. <laughs> and I significantly did much better by just consistently having UWorld um, employed in my learning and and just trying to take every little bit of knowledge I can from the questions, including the right and the wrong answers um, and how to apply the knowledge and everything. So I, I think it's great. You know, I mean, obviously the price is tough. Um, it's It's time consuming to go through these questions. Um, so it's definitely something to consider. Um, and also something else that I did want to mention um, would be there are different ways you can utilize the test blocks. So you can like set how many number of questions you want. You can have them be timed or on-timed. Um, so everyone has a different kind of style of how they go through those. Um, so over time, I ultimately found that making a cluster of questions, be that however many I was going to do, either like 20 or 40 questions, do them all timed, get through them, and then review them. I found that to be much more efficient, whereas if I was going through one question, then kind of looking at the answer, I found that it was taking me significantly longer that way. So just think about there are different ways to utilize your efficiency and what ways stick in your mind the best with these question banks. Oh, absolutely. 
Anything else you want to add for you, World? I know it's such kind of like the, the beast mm-hmm. of the yeah. first year, and it gets built up so much in terms of it's just the resource to be using to get ready for, for step one. So mm-hmm. I think everyone listening to this is going to end up using it, yeah. and uh, I think they should. You know, it's it's an important one for sure. Got it. So kind of just summarizing, like I did with the different resources from learning, the question banks, there's USMLERX, which is a very solid question bank. I found it to be excellent for a first pass. I think Jonathan did as well. Mm-hmm. Kaplan, neither of us used it, but we've heard great things, kind of similar vein to USMLERX. Um, Amboss, I used that. I thought that was a phenomenal question bank. I personally would kind of put that on the level of UWorld in terms of the style of questions. Uh, and then there's UWorld as well, which is more or less the gold standard. I think people are going to differ in their approach and the recommendation of whether they want to kind of use it as a continuous learning apparatus kind of throughout their first year going into their second year or if people would prefer to just save it for their dedicated time so the couple of months of pure studying getting ready for step one so i think there's definitely pros and cons of both i definitely fall in the let's just kind of use this as we're going along learn cardiology from you world as i was learning cardiology and kind of go from there and then i think the one resource that we really didn't talk on i'm not sure how often it's used at our school anymore i'm not sure how much it used at other schools, but there's also Lecturio, not to be confused with lecture. Lecturio, I, I did not find it particularly helpful. I think I have PTSD when it comes to Lecturio. We used to have exams based in Lecturio when we were in our fundamentals, our first block, and I did not do particularly well on those exams. So I don't know. I think it's more me than Lecturio, but I was just, I was not feeling the Lecturio at the time. It was, it was definitely an experience. Um, you know, it was it was great that the school gave it as a resource. Um, it was definitely well-intentioned. I would say most people found other resources to be a more efficient way to learn the content it was trying to present to us. Um, so ultimately, our student government pushed for um, AMBOSS instead of Lecturio. I think it was a great move. Um, but again, I mean, it's it's another one of those resources that if nothing's working for you, maybe give that a go. You know, it's, it's a very... Um, it's it's more dry, a lot of videos, a lot of test questions, um, but it's it's still got all the content there, so keep that in mind. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of just summarizing everything that we've talked about, we've talked about kind of the pre-clerkship curriculum in terms of developing effective study habits. We kind of talked individual versus group studying, uh, studying at home, studying at school, studying in public, the big Anki debate, whether to use those flashcards or not. And then we talked about all of the different resources that we just went through. And I know it probably still feels like a lot, and I know it did for me kind of getting this in bits and pieces, but I just want to give an example of what I did. And I think Jonathan can do the exact same thing in terms of how they integrated all of these different resources into kind of a coherent study strategy, because it definitely feels like there's a lot of fragmented types of different resources to learn from. So I'll kind of just go through my general approach in terms of going through M1 leading into M2 year and and kind of what worked well for me. So like I said, Boards and Beyond was more or less my go-to. So that's pretty much where I started for any particular area. If I was getting a test or something in school or a quiz or something coming up, I would prioritize learning that specific module first, just so I felt like I was coming to that particular quiz ready, ready to answer questions and well-informed. So I would go through Boards and Beyond and I still have the notes to this day. I would write pretty much everything that was said in Boards and Beyond on my iPad like an absolute weirdo. So I still have all of those notes because for me, I just I need to write things down to help put it all together. I mentioned earlier that I really need the big picture and 
I'm not a great audio learner. I'm a really good visual learner. So even just the act of writing it out and kind of seeing how everything connected really, really helped me. And then after Boards and Beyond, I would go over to Pathoma. There was a huge amount of overlap between Boards and Beyond and Pathoma, but Pathoma definitely had additional information and a different way of thinking about things that really helped me. Um, if the unit I was in had a strong need for any microbiology or any particular pharmacology, I would usually go through Sketchy unless for whatever reason I felt like I was really well prepared on those areas from Boards and Beyond or Pathoma. So I'd kind of supplement Sketchy in for those, those two areas. And as I was going through those, I would unsuspend my Anki cards along. A lot of the decks have kind of subdivisions based on Boards and Beyond videos. So you can watch a video, unsuspend those cards, watch a video, unsuspend those cards. So I would just kind of go through that for Boards and Beyond, Pathoma, Sketchy. And oftentimes there were cards left over at the end, and then I would kind of unsuspend them gradually and kind of make sure I had all of my bases covered. So once I felt like I had myself covered from the Boards and Beyond, Pathoma, Sketchy, and my Anki was up to date, which it was not always up to date. <laughs> I sometimes fell behind, and by sometimes I mean frequently. Then from there, I felt like I had a foundation, like I knew the content area, and then I would go to USMLERX, do all those questions for the area, go to AMBOSS, do the questions, and then go to UWorld and do the questions. Ideally, I would get all that done in time for the test. Not always was I able to get every single question done for the test. And sometimes I definitely fell in the habit of, say, I was doing AMBOSS and I was tired. I was ready to go to bed for the night. I would just kind of click random answers and just read through the explanation instead of spending an additional like kind of two minutes debating the question. Because for me, I found like I still learned a lot just from reading the explanations. So I hope that gives you an understanding of kind of all the different resources that we had and how I kind of kind of put them all together in a way that worked well for me. Jonathan, I'm curious yeah. to kind of see what your your ideal algorithm was for kind of putting it all together. Yeah. So um so I'm actually I think it's funny because we were very similar in our learning styles for sure. Um the only thing that I would say I did differently, so I'll I'll take it from the top essentially. Boards and beyond would be my base. Um, I would watch, I'd go through all the, whatever like block we're in. I mean, ours, our school has it split up into different organ systems. Um, so we're in cardio block for, or like cardio, for example, I'm going to watch all the boards and beyond videos I can. Um, anything relevant in Pathoma or Sketchy, like all the, the cardiac meds, I mean, that was extremely helpful. Um, and then as soon as I was done with those, I would just hop into as many USMLERX questions as I possibly could um, and then make sure to, to jump back and forth between the question bank and first aid. Um, and I would annotate a lot of first aid on whatever stuff that I think is useful that might not necessarily be there or some questions might harp on certain things that I think I need to remember. Um, I would annotate that. Um, and then honestly, because I, I found myself really struggling with efficiency at first, um, and I was trying to get through Anki, Anki and then all these other resources at the same time, and I just found myself struggling. Um, and ultimately, I found it, it really streamlined my efficiency to just, as soon as I got a, a decent foundation, just jump right in, start testing it, and then solidifying it from through questions. Um, it, it was definitely very helpful, I would say, and, uh, and I wish that I figured that out sooner, how important test banks are to really just solidify the knowledge in a, in a way no other resource can. Oh, yeah, no, definitely for sure with the question banks. It, it certainly helps testing yourself, and it also, I find, when you start doing well on the question banks, you just get a confidence in terms of mm -hmm. when you're going into the test, you just know you're going to be 
performing at the level that you need to and getting the scores that you need to make sure you're passing and making sure all your all your ducks are in a row. So it's definitely interesting. We had different study approaches, but there's definitely a lot of common themes and mm. kind of just extrapolating those is just kind of making sure you're building the base in whatever resource works well for you, whether it's purely Anki, Boards and Beyond, some other different resource, and then getting to the practice questions as well and making sure you have a solid foundation of practice questions before you go into your test for the block or any quiz or building up to, to step one. So I think that's kind of like a good general template, but then you have to fill it out based on what you do particularly well. And obviously one thing that we didn't talk about in our study plan was planning around what our group wanted to do because mm -hmm. we by and large study individually. So there's that additional kind of hurdle and complication to jump through in terms of scheduling with your classmates in terms of when they're available. So mm -hmm. again, just finding a way that really works for you. We hope that we gave you a really good understanding of the different resources, kind of the flexibility of kind of individual group studying and finding out what works for you. And then just the importance of, of question banks. And that's not something that, that goes away with step one. It continues to step two. And unfortunately, it's going to kind of continue for the rest <laughs> of your career when it comes to, to answering these questions. Mm -hmm. So developing the, the great study habits and, and getting it solidified earlier on, it can be a huge help. But it is definitely a learning process to figure out what that is. Definitely. And uh, another thing to keep in mind as well is there's a lot of different like sections of these different resources. There's a lot, a lot of content that you're going to want to have seen all of it before you start dedicated. Dedicated is not the time to start going through all the boards and beyond videos, all like going through all your resources, like you're learning it and seeing it for the first time. You want to be brushing up, realizing what you've forgotten and get better at those weaknesses. Um, so definitely keep in mind that you want to schedule out all the the info in your resources to make sure you see everything. Absolutely. And now I'm curious now that we kind of had the overview of all the different resources. And you said before going into medical school, you know you wanted to be a doctor, but there were so many different areas. Mm -hmm. And in the end, you obviously settled on psychiatry and got a fantastic residency from that. Um, did you kind of figure out that you liked psychiatry earlier on? Did you kind of do any additional kind of studying in that area throughout M1, M2, or was that kind of reserved for a little bit later on in M3? So honestly, I figured I had no idea what I was going to do going in, but psychiatry was honestly the last thing on my mind. Um, so I, I was knowing I needed to figure it out. So I was just trying to make sure that my, my application for whatever residency I ultimately chose was just generally strong. Um, so I wasn't able to be like, okay, I want to start doing some psychiatric focused research or, or dedicated volunteering to that. Um, but I still made sure to, to get as much just general like, interest in there, as much more stuff you can use to buff your resume, the better. So that was kind of the way that I, I took it because I just wasn't quite sure at the time. And now for you, you had the other side of the coin, right? Yeah, I pretty much knew from day one that I was planning on applying orthopedics. Um, if you ask my fiance, I can get a little bit narrow-minded and focused on one particular thing, but I tried my very best to explore all of the different areas. It's like, okay, can I see myself doing anything from internal medicine, the pulmonology, the cardiology, uh, endocrinology? I worked in the diabetes space beforehand and knew diabetes pretty well. And I try to keep an open mind, but I think I just, I always knew in the back of my head that I wanted to do orthopedics. And I was kind of just gearing up from that from day one, since orthopedics definitely is one of the more competitive specialties to get into in terms of 
kind of board scores and just looking at average research numbers from, from that perspective. And we can touch on that a little bit later, but in terms of looking specifically at orthopedics from kind of the M1 and M2 year, I wish I really did more kind of from that perspective. I think I got really caught up in getting ready for step one and seeing that there was a score associated with it and it was a way to differentiate myself. I wish I kind of learned more orthopedics, spent a little bit more time on anatomy and everything like that at the time, because for whatever reason, step one, it tests anatomy, but it really doesn't test anything specifically related <laughs> to orthopedics and kind of surgery in general. And we'll touch on that when we get to the third year in the shelf exams. There's really no like surgery questions that you get in medical school. A lot of it is the medical management of surgery patients. So I think looking back, I wish I explored the area a little bit more, did a little bit more reading when I had free time. But I think at the time you have such limited amounts of kind of focus and the ability to spend on different things. And I spent a lot of time studying and getting ready for step one. And I think more than I really should have. I think I should have kind of branched out and kind of focused a little bit more on some research and networking within the field of orthopedics earlier. But with that being said, it worked out for me in the end. And I'm very happy about that. But I feel like I definitely, looking back, I would have explored kind of orthopedics, anatomy, got a little bit more of a foundation in that during my, my first year and going into my second year as well. That is fair. And yeah, it's... I think the transition to becoming a medical student is so overwhelming. Um, it's a lot just to make sure that you're doing well in class, that you're doing what you need to, to, to think about boards and just set yourself up for success down the road, um, that it can be really tough to start focusing in on your specialty if you already know it at that point. Um, it really depends. But, um, but one thing that is very useful um, if you know what you're interested in is, um, especially for just getting general exposure to start meeting people, um, is finding student interest groups. Um, that is definitely something that a lot of schools will have. And so our school specifically, we're part of the second class. Um, so we had the benefit of the opportunity to start interest groups if there wasn't one already there. Um, and it was really easy for us to get leadership positions in those interest groups. And honestly, it, it is a great way to ultimately a huge part of your residency application is showing you're dedicated to your specialty. Um, and that is a really easy and fun way, honestly, to do it. And then you get to speak with a lot of like-minded people. And something else that's great is for me, I had no idea where I was going. I joined a bunch of different interest groups. I listened in on a bunch of different guest speakers, um, got a lot of free lunches. Um, so it was it was definitely a great way to explore and build connections and a lot of positives in a very low, like not a lot of is asked of you and you get a lot out of it. I completely agree when it comes to all the different clubs and everything. They're definitely a great way to explore different areas in the field of medicine. And I believe during our next episode, we're going to be touching on kind of, or not in the next one, we're going to be touching on kind of exploring the different fields within medicine and kind of picking what area you want to go into. So for us, we definitely had all the different club options and you get to explore the area. And for me, that led a lot into something that's really key. And the earlier you can get involved in this in medical school, the better is just having a mentor or having a set of mentors that can help guide you in whatever field you're interested in. I wish I reached out earlier in terms of finding a mentor when it come, came to orthopedic surgery. And this can be somebody where you can just bounce ideas off of, get a better understanding of the field, get a better understanding of the process of applying for residency there. And then also a huge part of applying to residency now is becoming 
more and more competitive to get into just about any field and research is becoming a part of that. And if you have a mentor that's connected in the research world, they can help get you connected to somebody who has some grants, uh, is publishing at a, a decent rate, rate lately, and I wouldn't say decent rate, is publishing quality research and actually engaging medical students within the process. And then there's some researchers who have regular meetings within a particular field where they meet monthly, and if you can get involved in those monthly meetings, you might be able to explore some opportunities to get connected in the field, to actually explore research and explore your critical thinking skills within that area, and then also to build on your CV from there. So I think the clubs are a great way to facilitate mentorship. And then as a medical student, I think a lot of the onus you need to put on yourself to kind of reach out to these mentors, because I was shocked that pretty much anybody that I reached out to was more than willing to help me. And if they weren't willing, there was always, there's going to be somebody else that you can reach out to and they can help guide you through the process. And it's definitely daunting and there's a lot that goes into it. So if you can have somebody in your corner that understands the process, that's just so incredibly valuable. A hundred percent. And it's, it's an invaluable resource that really can go a long way. Um, something I will say is if you're like me and not really sure what direction you want to go, um, it, it can be difficult to find a mentor because, you know, who, who do you really want to like emulate and try and become more like, you know? Um, but I will say I definitely found a lot of great guidance through people who became my mentors, honestly, who I just found our personalities meshed well. Um, and a lot of that was school faculty. Um, and it, it was a really easy way to, to obtain guidance. Really, I think the, just the support that they were able to give from being someone who went through what I went through, be it at a different time, um, and just and helping me keep my perspective as well as research connections. You know, even though I was just generally trying to bump my resume up and boost it, um, any kind of a mentor that's associated with your medical school is a great place to start if you're stuck. Absolutely. And I think part of the mentorship, too, is kind of understanding what is around you within the area of your medical school. Uh, when we were just in the middle of our first year, that's when COVID hit and shut down everything. And at that point, we were just starting to get into the clinic as part of our kind of practice of medicine course. We were with a primary care doctor one or two times a week or so, and all of that got shut down. And I feel like we missed out on an opportunity there to get involved in different areas. So if say you wanted to go into psychiatry, a lot of them have grand rounds a certain time during the week. And if you wanted to go to that program, it's a great way to kind of get your foot in the door. You can go to their grand rounds, introduce mm -hmm. yourself, get to know them, learn about the field, learn about what that residency is about. And then you're also getting FaceTime with the residents where they can see, oh, is this somebody that we want to invite to our program in the future? And then the converse of that, which I think a lot of people forget is, is this something that I can actually see myself fitting into for anywhere from three to seven years, depending on the specific area. So mm -hmm. the earlier you can get involved with that, it just the absolute better because you can get a better understanding of the field, what it's like, and then you can kind of get that face time and the mentorship and people like people that they are able to spend time with and enjoy being around. So it definitely goes a long way. So getting mm -hmm. keyed up into mentorship, either through faculty or somebody in your local community is definitely something that's of huge value. And I will say, uh, mentorship is easier to come by uh, in your clinical years. So I, I mean, I, I had some faculty mentors at my medical school during my first few years who were very helpful and helped a lot. Um, but once I started realizing what kind of area I'm more interested in, 
Um, I immediately found a mentor that I clicked with. Um, I was able to bounce off a lot of ideas. Um, he greatly helped me boost my resume through research, through extra opportunities to come into an outpatient clinic, um, just get as much exposure and learning as I can. Um, so it's it's something that will happen naturally. I mean, you can take the initiative and seek one out for sure, especially if you know what area you're looking for earlier on. But don't give up hope if it's if you're starting your third year and you don't really feel like you have a dedicated mentor quite yet. Absolutely. I feel like it's a great opportunity if you know what you want to go into, kind of like what I did, to reach out to somebody and have them guide you through the whole process and, and get connections and the world of academics and, and residency is a lot smaller than you think. People like to say that, but just going on my away rotations, there's always somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody. And it's just an amazing little network of people who just know each other and it just expands throughout a lot of the United States. So it's, it's pretty special. Uh, and then shifting gears when it comes to research in kind of your first and second year as well. Like I alluded to, a lot of these residencies are getting more and more competitive uh, there's no longer the step one in terms of kind of being a metric to kind of differentiate between different applicants. So then I think a lot of emphasis has gotten placed on research. And that's definitely a whole bag of worms. I don't want to necessarily go all the way down into it. But if you can get involved within research at an earlier point, I think I would recommend it. I think you definitely have to be aware of yourself. If you are struggling to keep up with the curriculum for pre-clerkship and you're just passing by and if you dedicated any more time to something else, you weren't going to be able to meet the mandates that your curriculum had, definitely shy away from it. But if it's if you're finding you're doing well on exams, you're able to balance that with potentially adding on some research, I don't think it would hurt to get involved earlier on. And I think that goes for just about any specialty at this point. There used to be specialties that were extremely research focused and they want to see a certain amount. And that is still the case to an extent, but I feel like it's becoming more and more common that that residencies want to see some research output during during your medical school career. What are your thoughts on that, Jonathan? A hundred percent. I mean, if you can get involved with research and you feel like it's not going to completely tank your grades, do as much research as you can. Um, and something that I learned recently during my residency application cycle that I wish I knew sooner is even if it's not in your future field, a publication is still a publication and it looks great. So I ultimately applied psychiatry, um, but I have a, a publication researching the genetic cause of cancer in pancreatic cancer patients, or excuse me, of cachexia in pancreatic cancer patients. And a few different um, interviewers brought it up and just wanted to chat about it and found it interesting. And just the fact that I was interested in research in general was they found that as a huge, huge asset. Um, so keep in mind, just whenever you have an opportunity, um, it's great. You know, mentors can do that. Um, also, I know of uh, a few kids in my class who are able to kind of start hopping on each other's research work and uh, and like find the same mentor. Um, and you can find really efficient ways to to start racking up your CV and boosting it a lot. Yeah, I think when it comes to research, I spoke with several people involved in, in different residency programs. And I think what they value in research is obvious, like obviously there's the publication aspect of it where you can actually see a discrete number, but they just want to see that you're able to balance many things at once. And if you have a lot of publication, it's an indication, not always, that you're able to balance many things at once. And that's a skill that is valuable in medical school, it's valuable in life, and it's valuable in residency. 
So if you're able to perform at a high level while balancing the demands of your medical school curriculum in terms of pre-clerkship exams, getting ready for step one, having good scores there, with having research, with having additional volunteer work, along with having kind of a personal life in order where you're not completely neglecting that, I think it goes a long way. And I think I got in the mindset of getting so focused on step one and having that score that it was at the detriment of kind of building myself as a complete applicant earlier on, where I wasn't necessarily focusing on research. I wasn't focusing on my relationship as much as I should have been at the time. And we soon developed a, a date night where regardless of how much I wanted to study or how far behind I felt like I was, Friday nights were clear for date night. And whether I liked it or not, sometimes <laughs> I did not like it. I had to take off from five o'clock till the end of the day on Fridays. And for me, that was definitely something that was an adjustment in getting used to. But looking back, that was one of the most valuable things that I did in medical school. So when it comes to research, I think there's a pitfall that people just want huge volumes of research. But from my perspective, just getting involved in interesting research projects where it's more of a labor of love than an additional task on top of everything that you're doing goes a long way. If you can find research in the field you're interested in, that's fantastic. But if you can find any research overall and demonstrate that you are able to balance multiple things at once, I think that goes a long way as well. Mm -hmm. And also keep in mind that different specialties emphasize research differently. Um, so, for example, orthopedics versus psychiatry, ortho is going to be looking at research a lot more than psychiatry will. Although, granted, even saying that, certain programs are much more research-heavy than others. So if you have an idea of what specialty you want to go into and what program you might be your dream program that you think would be incredible, look into that a little bit and see and be like, wow, okay, I, this is, they're expecting a lot of research. I better jump on that right now. Um, but really, if you're not sure, just fall back on a strong application is going to get you where you want to go. So, I mean, just just prepare for you're going for the most competitive specialty possible. Obviously, do the best you can, um, and it'll all work out fine. Oh, for sure. So we talked a little bit about kind of clubs and mentorship. We talked about research. Again, you're going to kind of make of this as you will in terms of what faculty are available, what your interests are, and just find something where you feel like you are developing your skills as a future physician. Don't just jump on projects just to jump on projects. Jump on something that you're interested in, that you can contribute towards, and that you feel is going to develop you as a future physician. Uh, one area we haven't touched on much is volunteering. I know that's definitely one area that residencies do look at. I think that was an area that wasn't necessarily the strongest for me in my application. Mm -hmm. I did some various volunteering in local community, but I feel like I've I always look back for volunteering and I just wish I did more. I wish I dedicated more time to that and, and anything like that. Do you have any relevant kind of volunteering experience throughout medical school and, and what yeah. were your thoughts on that? Um, so I agree volunteering is something that's very important. Um, I think our medical school experience where um, we hit COVID kind of struck in the second half of our first year. Um, and so COVID kind of prevented a lot of volunteering opportunities from happening. So I think that's a part of the reason why we wish we were able to do more. Um, but definitely keep in mind, however, whatever way you can stay active, find something you like and then stick with it. Um, it really just shows dedication. Um, it looks great on your resume when you're applying to residencies. Um, so keep that in mind. Um, so I would say the most meaningful volunteering experience that I got 
Um, actually, I didn't start it that long ago. I wish I started it sooner, um, but I became a crisis counselor uh, for the Trevor Project, um, where I just man their hotline and, and help any LGBTQ plus youth that reach out, um, try and manage them through whatever crisis they're going through. Um, and so that is something that I felt is a legitimate volunteering where I feel like I'm actually impacting and, and making positive change. Um, and while at the same time, residencies absolutely love that for psychiatry um, because it shows that I'm dedicated to the field. It shows that I'm working on my empathy skills. Um, and so, so it's really, you want to try and find a little niche that you're interested in, that you feel like you're genuinely doing some good and that residencies are going to be looking positively upon. I mean, that's just a home run if you're able to hit that. Um, and then throughout medical school, I was able to volunteer at a local food shelter, um, which that one is genuinely very fun. I, I'm still doing both of those volunteering opportunities now after in residency, just because they're they're genuinely, they feel good to do. Um, so there is, there is fun stuff out there. Don't think of it as just a burden. Definitely just try and find your spot. What's your opinion on volunteering, Matt? Well, I think you kind of hit everything there. And like I said, we didn't know each other too, too well before doing this podcast together. And it was interesting to see all the different things that you're involved with. And once you kind of take a step back, you're in the grind of medical school, you're kind of going through your day to day. And if you just objectively step back, you're with some of the most impressive people that you could possibly be with. So the fact that Jonathan was able to balance doing all of his volunteer work and helping out those different communities on top of kind of making sure that he was gearing up for his residency application and everything, just, it just speaks to quality of person that he is. And there's just so many people who are just amazing people in medical school and like I said you get in the grind of it and you don't realize it but you take a step back you're around some of the, the smartest people that there are and you can definitely learn learn a lot from them and it's cool because we're all so highly motivated and we're all so kind of especially as the years go you start finding your niche and what you're interested in um, so it's just it's really cool to to see the way different people are impacting the world and you know it's you chose a very very important profession and really life dedication and purpose. Um, so always keep in mind to be proud of yourself for what you're doing and and always keep that perspective that this is hard as anything I'll ever do, but it's worth it. Yeah, no, I definitely, I completely agree. And for me, kind of based on this, I want to touch on kind of personal life when it comes to kind of first year going into second year as well. And I think people deal with it in different ways. And we had the additional wrinkle of COVID where you weren't necessarily able to, to visit family members as frequently as you want to or in the manner that you would want to in person versus kind of over Zoom or any other Skype or anything like that to see them. So it was definitely a huge adjustment. And I think for me, I was extremely lucky. It was at that point that my fiance moved in with me during COVID and if it weren't for having her there to distract me and be silly and interrupt my studying every five minutes to show me something on Instagram or anything like that, I think I would have gone completely insane. So making sure that you have that support system in place, make sure it's either family, friends, anything, if it's a hobby, any other interests. And for most people, it's outside of medicine. For me, it definitely had to be outside of medicine. For me, for me personally, I couldn't even live close to campus just because I need at least 10 minutes to drive away from campus. So I feel like I am away from school. I know I'm going to be studying at home, but I'm still, I feel like I'm away from it. And just having that mental break for 10 minutes was incredibly valuable for me. So 
having my fiance there. I talk to my parents very regularly. I mean, whenever I'm in the car, I'm going to call them pretty much. And then hobbies. I mean, I played hockey throughout medical school and as any good Canadian would, eh, don't you know? And just, (laughs) it was something that was really good for me. It wasn't always at the most convenient time. Sometimes I had exams the next day and didn't feel like going, but I would still force myself to go because I would feel better afterwards. And it would help put into context that there's more to life than just kind of what you're going through right now. And you can't just abandon everything like that. And fun fact, when you're actually interviewing for residency, most of the time they're <laughs> going to ask about your hobbies anyway. hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. And that's, I mean, it's, it's honestly something that thankfully medical schools are starting to emphasize it's important more. Um, but student wellness, you know, just maintaining your sanity. Um, it's a lot easier said than done at certain points of medical school. And Matt is so right. We it, it all goes back to your social supports, who you have around you. Um, and everyone's situation is going to be different. Um, so I was lucky enough to go to a medical school about 20 minutes away from where I was born. Um, so I lived at home, saved rent money, commuted to and from campus every day. Um, so being close to home, I just automatically had my full social network around me. Uh, I was just, I had everybody there that I needed. Um, so I was able to, to keep that and really it helped a lot. Um, but I will say there's a dual edge of the coin where, um, so we had a lot of classmates coming from across the country. Um, and they essentially formed very, very tight bonds with each other, especially the people that didn't have any family around. You know, the the classmates became their second family, essentially. Um, So at a certain point, I was like, isn't it kind of odd that I'm not as close with classmates as a lot of other classmates are? Um, And I talked that over with a mentor. And honestly, it's it's a quite normal thing, depending on your background and who you're who you're around and who what social supports you have available to you. Um, so I loved the fact that I could go home, completely separate myself from medicine. Um, honestly, it was such a mental relief to to have people there that had no clue what any health condition is, basically. Um, it, it just made things, it, it allowed me to, to cut ties. I would study at home, then I would come back and be done for the day and, and kind of decompress a little bit. So that was very, very helpful. Um, on top of social support, Matt mentioned hobbies, and that is very pivotal. Um, of course, it's going to be hard to keep up with them as much as you used to. Um, but yeah, I would say exercise was my main hobby and stress relief. Um, luckily, we had a very nice gym on campus here, so I was able to utilize that quite a bit. Um, and it's, it was just a positive outlet for a lot of stress, and, uh, and I found that to be great. Um, and also, we're in South Florida, so I, as often as I could get down to the beach, I was doing that. And um, just you got to find whatever works for you to help stay sane. And yeah, as Matt mentioned, um, I think literally every residency interview I had, they asked me what you do to <laughs> to relieve stress. How do you manage it? Um, so you want to come up with coping mechanisms that work well for you and that are not totally boring and basic because you want to be able to talk about them too. Absolutely. I always find it funny because I saw some in-person interviews when I was going and you could tell the people that didn't necessarily read through your application completely beforehand and you see their eyes just darting through the application. And for whatever reason, everybody's eyes, if they didn't read it, always settled on hobbies because it's something that they could like, quickly pick up and just ask a question on, listen to you and when they're biting for their next question. So definitely good to have a couple hobbies. And 
not only just for the application, but just, I mean, it keeps you sane throughout medical school. It's something fun to get involved in. We're just not future doctor robots getting ready mm -hmm. to, to practice in the hospital. There's so much more to life than just that. And it definitely is a, a huge profession and something that we look forward to going into. But there's there's lots more to life than just that. Yeah. And picking up new hobbies, too. You know, I mean, it's obviously you're not going to have ample time to just try a bunch of stuff. Um, but when you do have the time and something piques your interest, just go for it. I randomly started growing plants in my backyard and I've been like cold, I've been harvesting jalapenos and like broccoli and cauliflower. And that's so random, but honestly, it's fun. I get to spend time outside. Um, it's, it, I mean, you'll find random things that, that work for you. So just, just be open-minded and curious. Yes. Well, he has the plant collection. My fiance is building a rock collection as a geologist, <laughs> so I got a lot of interesting rocks in my house now, something that I never thought I would have. So <laughs> I'm learning. I'm learning as best as I can for that. Very cool. Gotcha. With that being said, I think we've got a couple minutes left right now. I think just want to quickly touch on some other areas when it comes to kind of what to know in kind of your first year and your second year a little bit. And I know some of our colleagues did an excellent job in terms of performing when it comes to clerkships in M3. So I think we'll defer to their video when it comes to, to that advice. But we'll just give a, a quick overview of kind of getting ready for M3 as well. But one thing I want to touch on is AOA, which is an honor society that many medical schools participate in. And as a newer medical school, we were not able to join AOA because there's a certain number of years that you need to get in place to have a chapter come to your school. Um, and for those that do have a chapter, it's just worth your time kind of looking through what goes into selecting students for AOA. And again, if you're interested in a highly competitive specialty, some of them do value AOA compared to other specialties. So as long as you're just aware of what AOA is, kind of the criteria that go into getting it, and I think each school is relatively unique when it comes to the different breakdown in terms of AOA criteria, but just familiarize yourself with it because you just don't want to be in the situation where a couple of years later you want to get into a specific specialty and for that one it would have been nice to have AOA but you were behind the eight ball because during your first and second year you performed well enough in class, you did really well on step one, you have the research and everything in place but you weren't AOA because you didn't put enough emphasis in the specific areas for those courses. So I'm just going to leave it at that. Just make sure you're aware of it and if it's something that you feel is worthwhile pursuing, make sure you kind of incorporate that into how you go about preparing. But it's not the be all and end all, but just something to be aware of and something that I wasn't aware of when I was in first year. Obviously, we didn't have it, but something that it's good to know when you're in first year in terms of what goes into it. And I would say as a general rule of thumb, if you know what you're trying to become as far as your specialty after graduating, just research it as much as you can. Um, start looking into things about what residencies are emphasizing in those like specific programs um, because honestly it, it feels like it's an eternity away but it happens real fast and you would have definitely wish you started sooner if so just as soon as you know what you're interested in try your best to to start catering and building that resume towards that and until you figure it out just be general be enthusiastic and just try and be as involved as you can. I completely agree. Uh, and then another area we wanted to touch on just to make sure we're kind of covering everything is dedicated studying for step one. Obviously, it's pass-fail now, so I feel like the pressure isn't quite the same as it is, but I feel like that gets a lot transferred over to step two now, which is a separate conversation. But 
I think for step one preparation, I think at that point you pretty much know what works for you and what doesn't work for you. And so just come up with a study plan, work with some of your advisors, kind of develop what base what works based on you. If you feel like you need additional time, you can go ahead and take additional time. And I think a lot of schools have in place, I can never remember the acronym, it's like CCBSE. There's so many different acronyms. Whatever test that you take before step one to see how you might do on step one, go ahead and, and take that, understand what your baseline is, and then understand you need to come up with a strategy to go from that baseline to where you want to be. If mm. for whatever reason you're already at where you want to be at, that's fantastic. Just make sure you're reviewing and make sure you take step two and perform really well and are well rested for it. If you have room for improvement, make sure you have a strategy about how to go about getting that improvement done. And I think we alluded to, to UWorld and we didn't just allude to it, we talked about it a lot. That's one of the, the key resources to use in going through practice questions and, and just identifying areas that you need to improve in. I don't know if I have anything additional to add for step one prep. Mm -hmm. What would you like to add? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned making a schedule. I think that's really pivotal. Um, so we, our school like forces every student to make a, a dedicated study schedule. And that really helped because otherwise you're just kind of blindly going at it. Um, and if you, you want to allot, you want to allot your kind of break it into half days and think about, okay, so how is how emphasized is a specific topic on the exam and then you want to kind of break up or like whether it's breaking into half days or third days you want to make sure to allocate like enough time to each subject like based on its importance and then also keep into the back of your mind how well you know these subjects like if you know you absolutely are terrible at a specific subject give yourself an extra day of focusing on that at least you know what i mean so um, it, it's definitely a good idea to plan it out ahead of time. Um, and yeah, honestly, I, I think my biggest mistake during step one was trying to utilize too many resources and not just grinding through UWorld as much as I possibly could. Um, I did, I just went basically straight UWorld for step two dedicated and it went so much better where I just utilized UWorld as a way to keep applying, keep practicing, and then just thoroughly, thoroughly looking through each question like we already mentioned, not just why it's right, but everything else is wrong. Um, you really take a lot from that. And then em by emphasizing all the wrong answers, you're really learning five things at once. So it really just becomes this wide out branching tree. Um, and so it's, it's very useful. So I would just say, don't get into, some people think, okay, let me just crush through Anki or let me like rewatch all the boards and beyond. Like I would highly recommend against that and just focus at that point. You already know the material. You got to start applying it and seeing where, what areas you forgot and then specifically brush up on those areas. Yeah, I completely agree. And then the other thing is there's tests that they have that help kind of place you. I mentioned the C CBSE again. I do not know whatever acronym <laughs> it is for that one. But UWorld has, in addition to just the question bank, they have dedicated exams for it, and then NBME does as well. And pretty much when it comes to this, the more questions you can do, the better, because you're understanding what you know, what you don't know, and then you can address those areas that you don't know. So definitely take advantage of all the resources around you. And like I said, by the time you reach this point, you kind of know what your learning style is and what works well for you. 100%. And keep in mind, different forms of practice tests are easier or harder than others. So like you want to look up 
like you could you could find forums about it. Um, some my academic advisor told me which ones most closely correlate to your what your score you'll probably get. Um, and she was dead on by like two points both times. It was the the U World forums I found were very very close to the actual performance. Um, whereas some practice exams are easy and then you get overconfident. Some practice exams are crazy hard and then you feel terrible. Um, so always keep that in mind when you're going through these and and take everything with a grain of salt. And just just keeping them back in your mind, you're going to survive. You're going to get through it. Just do the absolute best you can and live with it because there's nothing else you can do. Absolutely. I definitely preferred the ride high whenever I got a really good practice <laughs> test score. And then if I don't score as well, it was the test fault. So <laughs> that's a good way to look at I it. I excuse myself from any performance issues in that in that scenario. <laughs> And then with the last couple of minutes of this, we just wanted to briefly touch when it comes to M3. So at this point, you've done all your pre-clerkship. Uh, you've taken your step exam. You can take a giant sigh of relief. Hopefully you get the pass in the mail or in the email soon enough, and then you feel really great about yourself. And then as soon as that happens, you're switching over to your third year. So like I said, some of our classmates did an excellent job talking about performing in third year. I just wanted to touch on a couple things when it comes to preparing for third year and that comes with selecting what track you want to be. I think I spend a lot of time getting bent around the axle about selecting the ideal track for me. And so what that means is there's a different order in which you take every clerkship when it comes to third year. So some people start with internal medicine, some with surgery, some with OBGYN, and it can be completely different based on where you're assigned. So unlike the first year of medical school, you're not going through it exactly with your classmates together. It's very much more fragmented. You're in different hospitals. You're on different rotations. And as somebody who was interested in surgery, I really looked into it. You don't want to take surgery too early. You don't want to take it last. You want it to be in the middle. Some people recommend potentially doing your OB rotation before your surgery rotation so you can get used to being in the OR and scrubbing in. I think there's some validity to all of that, but I think bottom line is if that's what you want to do, you're going to find a way to make it work out. And I think I spent way too much time stressing about the order of the rotations. And I think in the end, I could make a good narrative for why any order is the best order. You could have internal medicine at the beginning, and it's perfect because it sets you up for all your other rotations and you learned all the information. You can have IM at the end and you can be like, perfect, it's right by step two studying and you're going to get to go right on earlier. And you can play all those games in your head. But bottom line is you're going to get assigned to a specific track in terms of where you're going to be and you're going to have to make the most out of it. Yeah, I, I definitely agree that, I mean, at the end of the day, you're going to go through all of them. Um, and also keep in mind, yes, you will perform better at the rotations towards the end of your third year versus the, the first one you have. Um, but also your preceptors know that and they're expecting it. Um, so they're not expecting a fresh M3 to know how to present perfectly or give a great assessment and plan. Um, so just keep in mind, like, it's it's more about just trying to figure out what they want from you, what they're expecting, and then just being genuinely curious is is going to take you a long way. Asking questions, researching things yourself. I mean, that's stuff like that just shows that you're actually enthusiastic and that'll really help in the, the clerkships themselves. Um, sorry, I got a little sidetracked. <laughs> but going back to just judging your actual um, track that you're going to get, I agree. So I personally... I knew I was going to hate surgery, so I did surgery my very first one. I was like, <laughs> I'm going to learn the hard way, just get it over with. Um, and I actually loved that doing it that way. 
Um, because all the rest of my clerkships after that felt like a dream in comparison <laughs> to me. Um, so it was great. I would say looking back, um, my very last rotation of my third year was psychiatry. Um, and I think that was to my detriments because first off, I was freaking out at the end of my third year, like, what the heck am I going to do? Why don't I like anything? <laughs> and then I finally found it, you know, but, um, but if I realized that sooner, if I ha was exposed to it sooner, because honestly, there's no, you get exposed to psychiatric concepts in your pre-clerkship years, but until you're actually there living it, it's completely different. Um, so, so once I got exposed to that, I wish it was earlier on in the year, maybe midpoint. So that way I could have started building those connections sooner, um, started getting more research in the field. Um, there, there are definitely a lot of advantages to it, but at the end of the day, you're going to be assigned like not everyone gets their first choice. So, I mean, just live with it and do your best on all the rotations. For sure. And then just some other things I want to mention about the tracks. Consider driving distance. If you are not a big driver and you absolutely hate driving and you want to make sure you're kind of maximizing the time around your family or at home or anything like that. Just be aware of that. There's some tracks where it's going to minimize driving relative to others. I don't know if that necessarily should be the most important reason why you're selecting one, but it should be something that you're considering. It could be a good tiebreaker between two specific tracks. One you're driving 45 minutes a day, the other one you're driving five minutes a day. I know which one I would rather do. Uh, another one, and this is a little bit unique to our school, is language barriers. So we're in South Florida and there is a huge uh, Spanish population down here. And specifically one of the hospitals we go to has an enormous Cuban population where a lot of people do not speak the best English. So if you are not able to speak Spanish or convey some basic medical Spanish, I might want to shy away from those if I were you because it's going to be a really tough rotation to get through. And you could kind of parse it out a little bit based on the rotation. For internal medicine, I feel like it would be absolutely impossible to do it if you're not able to communicate with the patients in a particularly great way. Same with psychiatry. Uh, surgery, I feel, again, it's true for all of them, but for surgery, you can kind of get away with it a little bit more if you're able to kind of just learn some key terms and, and kind of go from there. But definitely pay attention to that. And then my last piece of advice for kind of selecting your tracks for third year is reach out to the people in the class above you. They've went through it. They know which hospitals are accommodating. They know which ones are a little bit stricter. If you absolutely do not want to do surgery, you hate surgery. You never want to do surgery for the rest of your life. And you reach out to the class above you and they say, this hospital keeps you there for surgery longer than any other hospital. You might want to move that one down the list a little bit. And so just reaching out to them and just figuring out what, what you value in terms of your third year experience. Again, you can get wrapped around the axle when it comes to the order and the distance and everything. But Bottom line is you're going to be able to set yourself up for success. You're going to be able to do well, and you're going to kind of build towards your fourth year. And you can listen to, to our classmates talk about how to go about performing really well in those third-year rotations in their podcast. But I think that's it for me when it comes to M1, M2, and kind of the planning part of N3. Anything mm -hmm. else you want to, to add to that or discuss or would be valuable to the listeners yeah i mean i think we gave you guys so much info you're probably just sitting there with your mouth open like <laughs> what does any of that even mean but honestly it's it's just a matter of trial and error and you're gonna get through this you just gotta transition find what works for you um, and everyone's different. So I, I made the mistake originally of being like, oh, this has worked for my friend. This has got to work for me. Um, but you just, just keep in mind, it's okay if you have a unique way of studying. Um, just gauge how you're doing on, on your 
however assessments happen, um, if keep those focused and then just just roll with it, you know. And uh, and we really appreciate you guys listening to us today. I had a lot a lot of fun getting to know Matt better. Um, it's it's really been a pleasure. Awesome, thank you so much. We'll be with you with the next episode shortly. Thank you guys. Have a great day.